Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2013 Circle of Film Awards in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's super califragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? What is this? Yes, we have gone back in time to 20, 2013. Uh, this was the year of 12 Years a Slave. This was the year of Gravity, of Her, of Wolf of Wall Street, and American Hustle. A lot of big films that really swept up a ton of awards uh, throughout the entire year. And it's... it's, it's it's a good year, in my opinion. It's a very, very good year of movies, and uh, you know, but you've got uh, Dallas Buyers Club coming out this year, Blue Jasmine, Frozen. Uh, you had Great Gatsby winning two Oscars. Um, looking at the rest of the categories here, Twenty Feet from Stardom as Best Doc, The Great Beauty as Best Foreign Feature, and. Uh, uh, Captain Phillips, Nebraska, Philomena, Inside Lewin Davis, August, Osage County, Lone Survivor. A lot of movies covering the spectrum. Uh, just a strong, strong year, in my opinion, that, that did a lot of, uh, I don't know, it, it pu pulled out all the stops, kind of. Uh, I've seen all the films that were nominated or won an Oscar in 2013. I've seen 386 films released in 2013 as of this moment. And uh, that's that's a pretty strong, healthy number. And hopefully lends a little bit of credence to, to my decision on, on what should win a couple of these categories. 2013 is tied with 2012 for me. With for the most films to make my top 300 movies of all time at the moment, uh, so so there's a lot of lot of fantastic stuff uh, in my in this list here, and I'm I'm really excited to to get into some of this stuff and and, and talk about it and and see what happens. So that being said, um, 2013, let's try to remember what it was like as we listen to this brief medley of the original song, Nominees. You argue and you bicker and you fight Atheists and Catholics Jews and Hindus argue day and night over what they think is true But no one entertains the thought that maybe God Tell us the reason Youth is wasted on the young It's hunting season And this lamb is on the run We're searching for meaning But are we all lost stars Trying to light up? I call re-entry Got a river to fight With a healthy libido You lose her vote If you make her a widow Play catch out in the back with our kid, don't please, Mr. Kennedy. I wanna go, so show me how to count down on the globe. 
vote Got the nerve to tell me you love me I said again, again, sell it again Bitch, I'm 10, let me go outside and With that, let us jump into the first category of the evening. Uh, we're going to be doing best tactile effects. And just as a reminder, that generally includes, but is not necessarily limited to, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, production design, and sound. And the nominees for best tactile effects are American Hustle, Her. The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smaug, Snowpiercer, and Why Don't You Play in Hell? Question mark. So I really liked, uh, when I talked, uh, I think I did in the 2014 Circle of Film Awards, starting with number 5 out of, or, or 10 as it may be, in the lead and supporting categories, and that being the order for which I talk uh, about the films, and I'm going to continue with that. So... Uh, starting with my number five in the tactile effects category is Why Don't You Play in Hell? Question mark, directed by Sion Sono. Uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell is is a raucous and, and fascinating film. I have talked about it on the show before, but the general premise is uh, a handful of filmmakers, team of filmmakers, uh, get in the middle of and help convince two warring Yakuza uh, uh, team groups to fight each other and let them film it. And that is fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating premise. But as far as this category is concerned, the costuming uh, on everybody is is great. And the, the effects, the makeup effects, the, the hair design... Uh, the production design of getting these guys through these scenes uh, and filming everything while being filmed themselves is incredibly tricky. Uh, managing all the blood, all the disheveled hair, all just like everything that everyone's wearing is constantly being torn apart and ripped apart and holy and blood. Everything is just constantly in a state of fluctuation. And for the, the the teams that are keeping up with that, that's just it's super impressive to me. Uh, the sound is also great. Uh, you have constant gunfire in in the second half of this movie, and it it's it's just it's it's really just kind of over the top all of it, and it plays out kind of like a live action manga, and or, or live action anime, I suppose would be a better term. And in that sense, there are really sky's the limit with a lot of this stuff. I think I think the strongest of the four big categories in tactile effects that why don't you play in hell excels at is for me uh, the, the the production design. This this house that the bulk of the final battle takes place in is uh, just really 
intricate and complex, and it has to be designed just so, uh, as I mentioned, to be able to not only have the film crew filming what's happening, but have the actual film crew filming the film crew that is filming what's happening, and everybody has to maneuver perfectly. You have all of these people working uh, in tandem together between both teams of the Yakuza, running through the house, through the stairs, hallways, doors, uh, everything has to be just so, and it, it really is, it really is just so, and Sion Sona creates a pretty fantastic, um, not epic, I mean, it's it's a fairly long film at over two hours, but he, he creates a really, really intricate and, and complicated film that is a lot of just fun and uh, features some pretty fantastic tactile visuals. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's a film that looks great and, and sounds great, and that's what makes it into this category for me. So, number five, why don't you play in hell? Number four in tactile effects is The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smog. I, this is my favorite of the three Hobbit films, uh, for what that's worth. Um, I think it's really fascinating. I think of the three films, it is the one that it's uh, sort of uh, tepid pacing uh, benefits the most. I think uh, just the the environments that, that Peter Jackson is able to create in all of the movies that he's done in the Middle Earth series have just this fantastic... Uh, they just feel so real. And... While the Hobbit films definitely have a much more CGI touch to them, uh, this is the it, Desolation of Smog still has quite a bit of, of real tactile feel. Um, you know, you you all the cities that they they, they travel through, uh, the environments, you know, the atmospheres, they're kind of like hybrids of CGI and and practical effects, and. To me, I think it, it just it comes across so authentically. Uh, the the costumes of the characters look so are, are so great uh, throughout the entirety of this film, from the robes to the tunics uh, to to every you know from the elves to the humans to the hobbits and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, everything just looks uh, great. Uh, the dwarves, uh, you know, they all have a distinct style, and it shows. You know. It shows. Uh, the sound in these movies are, are is also very, very good. You have to handle all these different creatures, all these different weapons, and and you know from uh, Bilbo being in the cave with all the mu- coins and the dragon uh, to walking through the town and walking on planks and boards and and uh, in the water and and all these different sorts of situations that really take, um, I don't know, it's a very wide array of sound effects to, to encompass. And Desolation of Smog, I think, is, is very, very good at all of these things. Um, makeup and hairstyling, eh, probably the weakest of the four things in this group, but uh, it's a film that looks good, it sounds great. I would say the sound is the most exemplary, maybe that or costume design for this film. Uh, both very very strong in their own rights, and uh, I think it, it you know it, even if you you aren't quite as as excited or thrilled by the Hobbit movies as 
I am, and and uh, to be fair, you know, Battle of the Five Armies, big thumbs down. But uh, I think Desolation of Smog is is a strong one, and uh, I think most of that comes from the technical work on the film. Uh, hence the nomination. So my number four is The Hobbit: colon, The Desolation of Smog. Smaug. Moving on to number three in the category is American Hustle. American Hustle um, features some fantastic performances within the film, but first and foremost, I think the strongest element is, in my mind, the the costuming, the makeup, hairstyling, uh, the production design on some of these these rooms and buildings that are involved throughout the film, uh, you know, the back back rooms and back channels that have to be traversed. A lot of that stuff is is just really, really technically fantastic. Uh, the costumes of this era that the movie takes place in are lavish. They are beautiful. They they just just pop and really put you back in that time period. And I think that that is one of the most important aspects of creating a um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for uh, a period piece and I think uh, American Hustle's got that in spades it's not uh, the sound it, take or leave the sound uh, sound weakest of, of the four and I think the makeup and hairstyling is very good uh, but doesn't really hold a candle to the costuming um, I would say that of all these nominees, costuming is probably the best uh, in American Hustle. It, it's probably winning that category for me at this point. But it, 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 the rest of its, the entirety of its tactile effects are, are just very, very strong across the board. But um, you know, the sound and I think uh, the makeup and hairstyling do drop it just a touch. Um, just. Uh, you have all of these fantastic people who you have to, to dress throughout this film, and they have like half a dozen different outfits for each person. It just, it just, it was over the top in the best possible way, and super in your face about this is where we're, this is what time period it is, this is what year we're in, and uh, the dresses, the suits, the colors, um, they all look great. Uh, you know, I think. Um, I think you know this could have been bumped up to maybe second, if uh, I think the I think the makeup work and hairstyling on Christian Bale and um, and most of the men in this is a little too. Uh, what am I trying to think? What am, uh, it's not too obvious, but it's it's I don't know. It, it's definitely you can see how fake it looks in my opinion you can see that it looks fairly fake i think the women are are done incredibly well uh jennifer lawrence amy adams but i thought christian bale and uh jeremy renner and so on and so forth i thought uh and bradley cooper i think a lot of them had uh i don't know it's it a little too obvious a little too too straight too straightforward too too um i don't know too too much too bombastic of, of uh, the facial hair and, and so on and so forth. So for me, American Hustle is my number three tactile effects nominee. Uh, and man, but it on the back of the costumes, on the back of the costumes. 
And this year's runner-up for best tactile effects is Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is uh, this is its lone nomination of the night, and it earns it completely with, in my opinion, the best production design um, by a hair uh, of the year. Uh, it has incredible sound as these this team of people is moving from one train car to the next. It looks fantastic. Um, the costumes are surprisingly diverse uh, as you move from one segment of the train to the next and you get to encounter different types of people throughout along their way. Uh, the, the Tilda Swinton character is fantastic, looks amazing. Um, the makeup and hairstyling, I thought it was, fa- it was splendid across the board, whether it's just making um, Chris Evans look dirty, look beat up, etc., etc., or, or lavishly coloring the, um, the well-to-do and wealthy people on the train. I think there's a wide variety of, of different techniques and, and styles in place, and Snowpiercer excels at all of them. Uh, it's got a lot of action for the sound quality to be, you know, you, you have this sound, you, these these fight scenes that are taking place in such a compact area, and the sound reflects this. The sound comes across as um, constrained, and, you know, you, you, you feel like you are in this, this train with these people because you are so close to them, because of the sound... Uh, soundscape really convincing you that everything you are seeing and hearing is is real and I think Snowpiercer completely excels at this Um, it's it's just top to bottom just a very strong and um, I don't know it, it just it just it just works on all of those levels for me uh, so, yeah, so, for me, Snowpiercer is my number two, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of what you see actually on the train was done through, uh, visual effects, but I believe of that, I'm, I'm under the impression and... Um, and it is understood as, as far as I'm concerned, that the vast majority of it was like set up and 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 done and built and 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 made to to work, and so it it really does feel real and and you feel like you're there and you feel like they're there, and that is a testament to a film that takes place in such a fantastical and and science fiction location. So, uh, costume design and makeup, I think, are, are the weaker of the two cat of the of the two segments of, of tactile effects. But overall, it is a very very strong tactile film. Which leaves, uh, if Snowpiercer is number two, the only film left, and this year's tactile effects winner is Her. Her uh, is the film that in my opinion, comes a hair's breadth away from winning production design outright uh, against Snowpiercer. It has some of the best sound effects and sound design uh, in 
of the year, uh, you know, when you have to balance not just uh, the world that Spike Jones has created, but the constant um, way of of influ- in, influ- uh, um, injecting uh, the Scarlett Johansson AI element on everything and figuring out a way to make this world feel like these these AI are really there. And that is a tricky, tricky proposition. You know, it's this near future uh, landscape that looks... I, I don't know. You, you know, there's a lot of elements of this movie that look current, like you would see them in real life, and then you twist, you know, you the camera pans just a little bit over, and you suddenly and and something enters the frame that doesn't exist, and and you know may or may not ever exist, and you know that is, you know that is the production, that is, uh, you know the the different way that people are dressed, and it's it's a little bit. It's just a little bit off from from what you are expecting to see, and like, so like the costume design has to be this very finite line they have to walk, and they do so exceptionally. Uh, the makeup and hairstyling is is constantly on point and just really working overtime to keep this movie uh, looking and feeling as as original and fresh as it is. Uh, and, you know, then the sound and, and keeping the levels right so that it does feel like Scarlett Johansson is in uh, Joaquin Phoenix's ear, but we can still hear her, and making all of that just transition perfectly from one scene to the next. When you introduce a third voice, when you introduce um, additional characters who are also able to communicate uh, with Scarlett Johansson throughout the film... Uh, you know, you have to balance these levels and, and, and make sure that the sound fits and, and works at a level that, you know, if you're there in person and if I'm just, you know, you know, it's not like you're on speakerphone. It, it's, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds cleaner. It sounds um, far more futuristic in that way. And... Uh, it, it really helps ground you in this world that you don't have any feelings, uh, or, or rather, that you don't um, have any knowledge of before the film starts. Uh, the, the landscapes, the, the houses, the buildings, um, the production itself, you know, the, even the little touches, like, the, like his desk at work and, and, and so on and so forth, like all these things kind of just... Of all the films, I think, of the five films that I listed even, uh, Her is the one where all of these elements work together so well that they ultimately um, put you in this world uh, from from the first second and never you never feel taken out of it. You know, there's never a moment um, where the CGI catches you off guard and surprises you by being... Uh, even even the smallest amount recognizable uh you don't feel like i don't know because it's so close to to the real world but you know you there's a way there's a side of at least me where you you're in this movie and you're like oh this could 
this could be real somewhere, and I'm just not aware of it sort of a situation. And that is because it looks so fantastic, and, and the details are so intricately considered, uh, in my opinion. So for me, best tactile effects is her. So running that down one more time, you've got Why Don't You Play in Hell, The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smog, American Hustle, Snowpiercer, and the first winner of the night, Her. Moving on to the second category of the evening. We're going to pair up tactile effects with special effects. Special effects, as a reminder, generally include, but are not limited to, visual effects, animation, film editing, and cinematography. And the nominees are The Garden of Words, Gravity, Her, The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smaug, and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Awesome. And let us just go straight to number five. Uh, this is the only nomination for this film, and that is The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. This is an animated foreign language film uh, that, you know, as an animated film, definitely gets into this category on the back of its fantastic animation and the, the strength of its beauty and the way it looks. Um, but it's, it's not just that, you know, this is a movie that has, it's, it's 2D, it is, um, you know, it, this is a Studio Ghibli film uh, co-written and directed by Esau Takahata, and it, it, it looks very, very, very hand-drawn, um, as, as opposed to a lot of uh, more American animation nowadays. And that comes with its own limitations, certainly, but it also comes with uh, just just some absolutely beautiful, beautiful scenes um, from uh, her in the flower, uh, her out in the field, just just the, the way the lines uh, are able to be so expressive and and so subtle in, in such with such variety is is stunning it's it's stunning and this is a film that features a lot of you know supernatural otherworldly elements to it and the the depiction of those those elements in uh the the animation is is just just jaw-dropping it's just absolutely stunning um outside of the animation uh the Film editing, the cinematography. This is a film that is is told. the The story is told in in a in a very sort of a fairy tale, you know, bedtime story sort of way, and uh, it has to be edited to match up with that narrative. And that's not the most straightforward thing in the world. You know, it takes a lot of time and consideration to. To pull that off fluidly, and uh, Princess Kaguya is is edited uh, quite quite well and and very capably uh, to pull off that 
that um, depiction. Uh, the cinematography is, you know, as far as an animated film goes, uh, it, it looks good. It's not exceptional, in my opinion. Uh, neither are the visual effects, which, you know, are basically just relegated to the animation of the film. So, tough. If I, this is a tricky one for this category because it's generally not as difficult for the animated films to get into it, but it takes more than just the animation for those films to win this category. And uh, in my opinion, Kaguya does not quite uh, get to that point um, with with any, with the visual effects or the film editing or the cinematography. They're all fine and good across the board, but none of them really come close to reaching the the uh, exception of the the animation on display. So, Tale of Princess Kaguya is my number five. Number four, uh, matching it in the tactile category, is The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smog. Uh, special effects on this are very, very strong. Um, it is a sweeping epic of a film, so the editing is, is fairly on point. As I mentioned, I think this is the best of the three Hobbit movies, and I think that is because it is. it looks much better. It is edited to not feel like it's one giant battle or it's 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 not sl- as slowly paced as um, an unexpected journey in my opinion uh, the effects on smog uh, the mocap by Benedict Cumberbatch all of that is is brilliant I think the visual effects in this movie are very very strong and the way that in some scenes they kind of take over but in others they they really do highlight and and uh, enhance um, many of the practical effects on display, uh, particularly outside of Smog's cave. Um, but you know, all in all, I think you know there really isn't much animation to speak of uh, outside of Smog himself, uh, which is good. It's solid animation, but it's not much more than that. And I think the cinematography has, I don't know, it's, a, it's frustrating because, you know, you kind of just can't help but compare these movies to the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it just doesn't really stand up. It doesn't, doesn't hold the same amount of water. And it's, you know, I mean, this is, as this is the best one, and it, it still doesn't really come close. So it looks good, but not great and hence only being up to number four in this category. Moving on to the number three category in the special effects, uh, number three film in the special effects category is Her. Uh, Her has a lot of uh, great visual effects in the film, Uh, very subtle ones, very subdued, understated ones, but but very great ones nonetheless. and it's also edited and and shot impeccably. You know, it is uh, a beautiful film to look at. It it feels very modern and, and even postmodern in some senses. It manages to just just kind of I don't know what what Jones does with this camera is is really 
fascinating because the film at its at its core, you know, is kind of this just this schlubby Joaquin Phoenix character who you know, he works a desk job and you know, he's not going off on grandiose adventures, you know, it's it's a film that's very down on the the ground and yet it's shot in a way that feels so much bigger than that and part of that is i think at times you're kind of really honed in on Joaquin Phoenix because you know Scarlett Johansson has no physical form and so you don't have to consider that there are two people to keep the camera on it's just Phoenix uh, but at other times i think the camera gives him more space and allows you to feel like Johansson is around him uh is, is just all-encompassing him and, and, you know, filling in all of the spaces. And it, it just, it, it really comes across very, very, very effectively. And um, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's really strong across the board. Uh, the, you know, making these, making this world feel real and you know that requires the visual effects to not feel uh like they are anything but practical and you know when you you know you're looking at the scenes where he's playing video games and and how those are incorporated into his house uh it just it just all kind of works um in tandem with the tactile stuff as well so number three for me is her Number two, the runner-up to this year's special effects award is The Garden of Words. Uh, Now, if this is one you might not have heard about, uh, The Garden of Words is an anime film, a Japanese anime film, that is only, I want to say, like 40 minutes long. It's fairly short, 45 minutes long, thereabout. Um, It is directed and edited and written by Makoto Shinkai, who is, uh, whose better-known films include Five Centimeters Per Second, Children Who Chase Lost Voices, and more recently, Your Name, uh, which ha- received a lot, a lot of uh, acclaim. Uh, but The Garden of Words, for all of its shortness, uh, it is a film that is is very straightforward. Um, it's a you know, drama, uh, sort of relationship story where uh, these two characters kind of meet in this garden uh, periodically. And as far as the special effects are concerned, this film is is it's it's flawlessly animated. It is it is easily best the best animation uh, of this year. And I would has, hesitate a, uh, a guess that it would probably win uh, best solely best animation um, the year after that, and and maybe even another year beyond. Uh, it it just looks incredible uh, for a film that is kind of like a two D three D hybrid. You know, you get a lot of depth to this sort of flatly animated film, and that is that is tough, and and it just comes across so beautifully. Uh, it is raining frequently in this film, and yet the animation keeps up with it the whole way through. I think the level of animation is what causes the movie to be so short because it 
I'm sure it took incredible, incredible amounts of time to um, finesse and um, perfect everything going on. Outside of the animation, uh, the editing, the, the cinematography is also incredible. It looks amazing. The, the camera angles for an animated film are jaw-dropping, you know? Like, this is a movie where you screenshot every second of it, and it's, a, you know, you could put a picture of it on your wall. It is that beautiful and looks that incredible. The editing uh, is is fine. The editing is is definitely the weakest element of it in my opinion. Um, as a shorter film, it doesn't need as much editing. It doesn't feel like it's been been reorganized or, or I don't know, it doesn't really feel like there's much editing going on in the movie. Uh, otherwise, there's a chance this could have snuck into the first place position. The visual effects are are good, but not exceptional you know I, I kind of relegate a lot of that to the animation quality and uh, yeah number two the garden of words um, if anything else check it out for its for how for what it for what it looks like you know even a trailer for it I'm sure it looks exceptional which just leaves our winner of the best special effects from 2013 and that that is gravity um, pretty easy one, I think, to guess ahead of time. Uh, Gravity, I mean, what can I say about it that, that wasn't said five years ago? Um, it's it's visually stunning. Uh, it's brilliantly edited. Edited. It has some exceptional cinematography from Lubeski. Lubeski? Lubeski. I, I can't say his name. Um... um. Emmanuel Lubeczki um, as the DP. Um, yeah, he he's 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 got it, man. Like he is really freaking good at this thing. And uh, I think I think Gravity is just a real real uh, cinematic accomplishment. It it looks exceptional. You know, I was never. I don't know. I think it's a great movie. I don't think it's an outstanding movie, but I think it is great, and I think uh, that all of that, or the vast majority of that, comes from uh, the visual effects and the cinematography, both of which top-notch. Really nothing else holds a candle to it. And, yeah, so Gravity's number one, and I think that kind kind of goes without saying this year. So... Running down the list one more time, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, The Hobbit, colon, The Desolation of Smog, Her, The Garden of Words, and the winner, Gravity. Moving on to the third category on the evening. We're going to go above the line with this one, and that is Best Screenplay. And the nominees are Ethan Cohen and Joel Cohen. Inside Lewin Davis. Destin Daniel Cretton, Short Term 12. Julie Delpy, Ethan Hawke, and Richard Linklater for Before Midnight. Spike Jones for Her. And John Ridley for 12 Years a Slave. 
a a really strong strong screenplay year for me this this time. Um, a hand of every film in this list except for her. This is their first nomination of the night. But let us start with number five. Number five in best screenplay is Inside Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin Davis, uh, written uh, by Ethan and Joel Cohen, the Cohen brothers, is a very languid and um, slow musical film, uh, musical comedy drama, uh, starring Oscar Isaac and a whole host of, of supporting players that <clears throat> it, it just it feels so real you know as we're following Oscar Isaac throughout this film and and his interactions with all of these different characters who uh, you know sometimes sometimes the film teeters almost into oh brother where art thou uh, magical realism levels but um, the the screenplay is able to hold things together and hold them in reality uh, brilliantly um, the music that the music written for the film is is very exceptional uh, the the dialogue is fantastic uh, the characters um, are you know you know impeccable and and so finitely cr- crafted you know from from um, Justin Timberlake who in my opinion isn't like an exceptional actor by any stretch you know so I don't you know, but his character, and you know, even the characters as small as as Adam Driver, and um, you know, you have him who he really doesn't get a ton to do in this movie, but what he does get get is is vibrant and and lived in, and it feels so real, and it makes so much sense from coming from this guy, this person, and it it just looks. You know, it just looks like he's his character is is just so. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's it's just uh, well crafted and conceived, and and then ultimately executed. And it takes a well written character to make that happen, to make that a reality. It takes um, crisp and fantastic dialogue, which the Coens have con- always really had in their films. And um, yeah, I, I just think I just think it's it's beautifully written, a beautifully written film that doesn't quite um, go a lot of places. You know, it's a film that meanders, and I think the screenplay keeps it on that path. But it's it's just really really a good, really well written, in my opinion. Inside Lewin Davis, number four. Um, Number four this year in best screenplay is John Ridley's Twelve Years a Slave. John Ridley uh, adapting this film from the novel, I believe, of the same name. Um, maybe not. I'm not sure. Twelve Years a Slave book. It is adapted from, yes, Twelve Years a Slave, but uh, with the spelled out word 12, not the numeral 12. Uh, by Solomon Northup, the um, autobiographical book, and this film is is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And 
so much of that can be the wealth of, of why that is can be spread across uh, a whole host of, of different names and people from McQueen who directed it to the performers to um, to, uh, to to Ridley to you know everything in, in between and I think for me the writing and just just making this this poor you know poor Chwedel edgy four who oh man he just just doesn't get enough time uh, opportunity and and chance to to save himself for so long and the way the screenplay builds that up and builds that up and and pushes him and not just him but Lupita Nyong'o's characters uh even even Michael Fassbender's character and and all of these people to this breaking point and uh that is that is tough that is that is tough to to manage and I think the screenplay in and of itself does its does a huge huge service to its actors and I think that is the testament to to why it is so so beautifully written uh it it keeps um you know it, it doesn't it unflinchingly gives you this Michael Fassbender character who is vicious who is vile who is this beaten down but but refuses to sort of sort of leave things be character and uh you get um you know i, I think that the ridley was able to completely transfer over uh, solomon northup's voice into this film you know he he permeates and and edgy four really picks up on it so beautifully but like the voice just permeates through the whole film and it feels so real and it, it feels like you know we feel like this happens is happening right in front of our eyes and uh, that's tough to do without having um something to you know without having like a memoir to base the base your movie off of but i think i think it's absolutely more difficult when you do have that memoir because it's so easy to just transpose the memoir into the screenplay and so many movies that do that just kind of fall flat and they're very just adequate and it really is a practiced hand and a practiced eye that is able to take those memoirs and or or true stories and give them new life and you know understand that you know the two mediums are are similar but incredibly different in in final products and ridley is is just brilliant in it and and he's able to pull off a, a screenplay that turns into a fantastic film and uh, a huge portion of that and, and a huge reason why that film is successful is um is his writing so my number four is 12 years a slave my number three is the trio of Delpy, Hawk, and Linklater for Before Midnight, the cap of the Before trilogy. And I I love this movie. I am so... I, I, the first movie, Before Sunrise, is... I, I, if I'm not mistaken, only credits Linklater as the writer. Uh, and... Linklater and Kim Krizan 
And by the third movie, you have to include Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy because they are so entrenched in these characters uh, that they cannot possibly be excluded from the writing process. You know, Jesse and Celine are just so fully realized before we even get to Before Midnight. And so when we enter Before Midnight and we get this, you know, it's not the the hopeful film that Before Sunrise is. It's not the sort of devast the, the sort of crushing reality or, or not reality, this is, Before Midnight is the crushing reality, but Before Sunset is is the sort of uh, disparate of the three um, films. And Before Midnight, it really, you know, it takes the heights that Sunrise hit and tries to find equal lows. And it does so in a way that feels natural and real for these characters. They are, you know, two people who are just so deeply in love, so passionate and fiercely uh, in love with each other. And they are written in such a way in this movie where you can still feel the fire between them. And yet, uh, instead of, you know, a beautiful night... uh, (laughs) walking around uh, the streets of Vienna, you know, you're in this sort of countryside vacation and all hell, everything goes to hell. And that is tough to have those two sort of um, sides of that coin and yet make it feel like it's the same people, make it feel like these are, this is really where these people would go. And credit Linklater, Hawk and Delpy for, for pulling that off because you know, these are movies that are just 95% dialogue, and they are some of the most kinetic films out there. And that is that is the writing. Uh, that is the writing, uh, first and foremost. So number three is Before Midnight. Number two, the runner-up for best screenplay for me this year is Short Term 12. Daniel De- uh, Destin Daniel Cretton uh, crafted just a a heartbreaking film uh, in with res- with regards to Short Term Twelve. Um, it, it's a movie that I can't get through without tearing up and sobbing. Uh, you know, it, it revolves around a California care unit for at-risk teens. It features an incredibly amazing uh, cast of of up-and-coming actors including Lakeith Stanfield, Rami Malek, Brie Larson, John Gallagher Jr., uh, you know, Stephanie Beatriz, and 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 more. And it finds a way to just you know it, it's a very simple sort of ensemble piece in a sense you know you have these counselors and they are dealing with these teens who have a lot of different issues a lot of different problems and uh, at first it kind of feels like more of a you know okay who's what's this person's problem what's this person's problem how do we fix it how do we put them on the path to forgiveness and and uh, um, making them feel whole again and suddenly the movie shifts partway through and it's not just about that it's it's also about 
the the counselors and and their own lives and how they're affected and influenced by these kids and how you know they they have to put on these facades but under the surface there's just as much pain and turmoil going on in the people looking after these kids as there is in the kids themselves they're just better at containing it and it, it it's just a beautiful beautiful juxtaposition of of those two roles that are played out in the film and and i think um it's it's destined daniel cretton's writing that first and foremost lends itself to this film and and pulling off such a fantastic um movie so my number two is short term 12 which means the winner of best screenplay it's second award of the night is her and spike jones uh you know this this the idea for this movie is brilliant the the you know all of scarlett johansson's character is dialogue um and that is you know to even more so than it is with with jesse and celine in before midnight it is all dialogue because that's all you get you don't even have an animated version of of her to look at and yet that is one of the most fully realized characters of the year (laughs) which is insane uh this is a movie that takes grand ideas and boils them down to a few sentences uh this is a movie where you have fantastic supporting characters that are you know you from from chris pratt to amy adams um to uh, just um you know even as far as like olivia wilde's character uh just everybody from one side to the other is you know the the scene the the phone sex scenes in this movie are brilliantly crafted and i think all of it just kind of you know, you take some of these things out of this movie and they feel strange, uh, like the sex scene or the interaction that Joaquin Phoenix has on the video game or the sequence of Johansson Johansson explaining that she's doing more than just in a relationship with Phoenix. Uh, all of these scenes kind of feel a little off, a little out of place if you take them out of her. But uh, within this film they all can come together and make perfect sense uh just absolute perfect sense and that is uh tough uh tough to do with a film as original and as unique as her is and spike jones's writing is is impeccable it's it's truly truly fantastic and i am a big fan of it and i'm a big fan of this movie and uh, not even to mention, I haven't even, you know, the, the writing for Joaquin Phoenix's character himself is is strong and great. And, you know, he is this kind of schlubby guy, as I said before, and that is intentional. He is supposed to be this kind of sad sack who finds this glimmer of hope only to have it ripped away from him. And that sucks. <laughs> uh, that really sucks. And... You know, it's, you know, credit the screenplay for not only giving us this character who isn't really the nicest guy, the best guy, 
but give it, getting us to sympathize and, and connect with him and give him this journey of ups and downs that we care about, uh, whether or not we think that the person experiencing them is necessarily um, a, a, I don't know, a good person. So Her is my best screenplay. Running down the list one more time. Inside, Lewin Davis, 12 Years a Slave, Before Midnight, Short Term 12, and the winner, Her, with its second win of the night. All right, moving on to category number four. We're going to stay above the line for this fourth category, and that is Best Supporting Performance. Ten nominees in this one. And the nominees are Michael Fassbender, 12 Years a Slave, James Gandolfini, Enough Said, Sally Hawkins, Blue Jasmine, Scarlett Johansson, Her, Yun Wu Lee, Mobius, Jared Leto, Dallas Buyers Club, Carrie Mulligan, Inside Lewin Davis, Lupita Nyong'o, 12 Years a Slave, Lea Seydoux, Blue is the Warmest Color, and Lakeith Stanfield, Short Term 12. Big list of people, uh, a lot of names on here, some some old, some young, some fresh, some fun. Uh, let's start at number 10. Uh, and number 10 is Jared Leto from Dallas Buyers Club. So the best, uh, best Supporting Actor winner of 2013 barely makes it onto the Best Supporting Actor list for me uh, at number 10. And this is, this is a tricky one. This is tough. Um, one, I think Jared Leto gives a great performance. I think he, he truly embodies, um, uh, what is it, Rayon, I think. And, you know, I, I think anyone who watches movies can tell, like, this is a good performance. This is a very good performance. This is an awards-worthy performance. And there's always going to be this sort of controversy of, well, why didn't they just get an actual um transsexual person to play Rayon. And I think that is a completely fair criticism of the casting process of the film, but I don't think that that should uh, extend to the performance of it, you know? I think uh, independent of the external elements of the movie and the external elements of the actors and the people involved, uh, the performance of itself, of, of this character is, is very good. And Jared Leto, you know, who is not, I mean, I guess now at this point, he's probably considered an actor first, um, and a muse and a singer second, uh, yeah, on his Wikipedia page, he's an American actor, singer, songwriter, and director. Uh, so for, to that extent, you know, I think, Dallas Buyers Club shows the best of what his acting can do. I think we are all kind of still looking forward to uh, him, you know, in more roles like Blade Runner 2049, where he's able to kind of do more and and kind of take the uh, creativity and, and range that he shows in Dallas Buyers Club and put it into a character that isn't as... Uh, controversial 
as as Rayon is. So again, I think Jared Leto gives a great performance uh, in this movie, um, managing to uh, just come up. Uh, I don't know. He he he's able to really surprise. He surprised me. Uh, I when I watched this movie for the first time, only time I think he. From as soon as it was over, I was like, "Well, Jared Leto just won Best Supporting Actor," and I was fairly confident about McConaughey as well. I think both of them give fantastic performances. I think Leto's is a touch better, personally, um, and I think, but for me, I think he's only number ten this year as support as a supporting performance. So that's that's where things are at. Um, number ten, Jared Leto. Number nine is Yoon-woo Lee from Mobius. I talked about this movie earlier this week uh, as one of my new July movies. Uh, one of the films I ended up watching uh, to kind of cover my 2013 bases. And it's a good thing I did because uh, this is... Man, I, I barely get able to talk about this movie um, uh, even on the review of it. Yoon-woo Lee, Yoon Lee is the... Lee, uh, the it's more of an ensemble film. I think uh, the film starts out with putting Yoon Woo Lee in the pr- uh, leading role, but after like 10, 15 minutes, she quickly becomes more of a supporting character, hence the supporting performance category. And the film opens itself up to her son, her husband, and, and others. And she is... Uh, the the things that the film asks her to do like this is a almost silent movie performance there's almost no dialogue she is giving this performance all of her her face her body everything she can possibly provide it and it's it's paying off brilliantly uh whether or not you think the film ultimately is uh um worth seeing because it is as i've said very very traumatizing uh i think her performance in it is exceptional and it takes a an exceptional performance to pull off the kind of character that she's playing uh the thing like even in the first minutes the things she's asked to do are horrific and and gruesome and she plays it so brilliantly so brilliantly i'm i'm just in awe of of how she was capable of of pulling that together uh so for me uh she's number nine she's uh that's that's yoon woo lee from mobius number eight this year best supporting performance is james gandolfini uh it's uh i I believe uh, let me see if i'm correct here not yeah this is a this is a posthumous nomination for gandolfini in enough said uh this is a nicole holofcener film which is a you know romantic comedy drama that gandolfini uh really he's he's just so lovable he's so nice and pleasant and yet at points in this movie this his character has to come out of that that kind of gooey center and you know there's a huge moment towards the end of the film where 
you know, everything kind of crashes down around him and he has to come to terms with the reality of things and Gandolfini is you know he's known for playing more of a hard ass you know he's he's known for um for playing more of a mobster more of a I don't know he he's more of an authority figure I think in a lot of the films he's been in and and roles he's had in the Sopranos and so forth but this movie he's he's kind of second fiddle for the much of the film and I think that ultimately rears its ugly head at the end when he kind of comes to terms with the fact that he has been second fiddle for this whole film uh, and not that like he is not that he becomes the lead or anything like that but just that his character is kind of ignored and and disregarded his feelings uh, by um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character and that sucks and it really explodes out of him and I think that that's a beautiful scene that was uh, perfectly captured between these fantastic actors and James Gandolfini is is best in show in this movie uh, for me by by a margin uh, this is you know this is a fantastic send-off for for a truly truly iconic face and actor and I'm I'm sad to see him go. So, James Gandolfini is my number eight in best supporting. My number seven, uh, getting her second acting nomination, is Sally Hawkins for Blue Jasmine. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I've seen Blue Jasmine once. I don't remember a ton about the movie. Um, it's It's mostly... Uh, you know, it's the Kate Blanchett show, for sure, and uh, she is nominated as a lead in this year. But I think Sally Hawkins uh, is is truly, truly, um, just just magnetic in this movie. You know, I I went back and rewatched you know clips and trailers and stuff when I was putting all these names together and and ordering them, and. You know, it, it's Cate Blanchett who is is completely in control of this entire movie, this every scene that she is in. And I think what I love most about Sally Hawkins' character and the way that she per- per- portrays her is that every scene she feels like she's just kind of like g- grasping at straws to kind of stay afloat. And I don't think that that is because she can't keep up with Cate Blanchett. I think that is a choice that she is making for this character uh, that she is saying this character constantly feels drowned and swallowed up by the Kate Blanchett character and, and Jasmine uh, and and being incapable of, of sort of ever being on top and um, Sally Hawkins plays her so well you know this is a character that you know I I you know, I think she is far more suited and and more comfortable playing roles like The Shape of Water and uh, you know, kind of these more subtle, understated, um, pleasant roles. And yet, I think Blue Jasmine really brings out this other side of her, this more manic and and crazy side that she's able to to adhere uh, uh, adjust to brilliantly. And 
I I loved her in this. So Sally Hawkins, great in Blue Jasmine, my number seven. Moving up to number six, uh, this is the fourth nomination for her, and that is Scarlett Johansson. Uh, this is just her voice. She pulls this off with just her voice, and that is not easy. Um, this is not the first uh, voice role to be nominated. Uh, you know, Aoi Cravalho has been nominated in the past uh, for her voice role, and uh, it, I'm sure you know you had um, Phyllis nominated for Inside Out for Best Supporting. Uh, this is not the first time, nor the last time. Uh, I'm guessing that we will see an animated or a, a voice role get this get a slot here, and I think it's totally deserved. I think Johan- Johansson is. I mean, she's. I think she's better than Phoenix is in this movie, if I can even say that. She is tasked with a much more difficult job than he is, and she is able to pull it all together and, using just her voice, give you a fully fleshed-out character. She is able to take those fantastic words that Jones wrote and turn them into a real character that you can visualize that you can feel is with phoenix all the time that she's talking and even when she's not talking her voice lingers and you can hear kind of her presence in the silence and it, it just it just all I, I don't know it, it just fantastic it's it's insane that that is possible at this point and i'm I, I just, I'm blown away by it. Every time I, I hear her talk in this movie, it's so, you know, she she starts out uh, just kind of flippant and airy, and as the film progresses, you know, it gets more meaningful. She gets, you know, her voice just starts to sound more, sound deeper. It becomes, you know, a much deeper connection between her and Phoenix up until the point where things kind of get flipped on their head, and then it's, Everything's a little more abrupt, and that's that's just it's tough. That that's got to be very tough to try to do with just your voice. And I think Scarlett Johansson knocks it out of the park. Knocks it out of the park. So my number six is Scarlett Johansson. Number five um, is uh, Michael Fassbender from 12, 12 Years a Slave. He, as I mentioned before, plays a villainous slave owner. He is uh, the on the wrong end of the is uh, um, um, he's on the wrong end of the whip in the scene involving him and Lupita Nyong'o. And I say wrong end as as far as um, uh, conscience wise. Uh, he is just. You know, Fassbender is is a fantastic actor and one that I have loved since the first movie I've seen him in. And his his supporting role in Twelve Years a Slave uh, is truly, truly horrific to see because you know he in any of these any film that deals with uh, slavery and that era for a person for a white person, you know it. Generally speaking, I'm assuming 
it sucks to have to get into the mindset and, and play a character where you are committing these unspeakable acts. And uh, I mean, I'm sure just as much if, you know, as, as, as it sucks to be a black person who has to go play a character in this movie that has to have gone through that experience. You know, those are there. It just, I, I can't even like imagine putting myself in either of those mindsets. And I think Fassbender is, uh, you know, almost unrecognizable uh, as, as that character. And, you know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of role that, that really messes with your head. And I think he displays uh, a lot of strength in the performance. I think, you know, you can see the sort of vulnerability and weakness in his face when like he has to do these awful things. And it it's, you know, at the end of the day, it, it convinced me, he convinced me that this was him. He was, you know, in that whipping scene, I, I didn't doubt for a second that, you know, at that, at that point that he would really have done it. And that is scary. You know, that is a scary, scary thought. And, uh, you know, Fassbender is great in it. He, he just knocks this one out of the park. And I was, I was super impressed by him in this movie. So Fassbender, Michael Fassbender, number five. Number four, we move over to Inside, Lewin Davis and Carrie Mulligan. Uh, Oscar Isaac leading this film, but it is Carrie Mulligan uh, who really is best in show. And she performs in the film. She sings. She is... uh, There's a great, great scene between her and Oscar Isaac on the park bench where she basically chastises him uh, for, I guess, the way he leads his life and how that's impacted and, and uh, affected her. <laughs> and she just is is on fire in this movie. She is, you know, she has that quiet rage in her character uh, that threatens to kind of explode at any moment. And you can sense the the sort of bubbling underneath the surface and she just she's able to to kind of put him in his place and you know Oscar Isaac's character is very lackadaisical he's like oh I can just fix this oh this will just work out for me you know throughout most of the film and she's one of the few characters that kind of is able to tell him like no it's not (laughs) you 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 done fucked up and and I'm not going to stand for it and you can't just kind of weasel your way back into things with me and you know all the credit to her and and her ability to play that role and and pull that off to such phenomenal uh, ability i i'm really impressed uh by her in this movie uh and and that's that's why she's number four carrie mulligan number four um it's really good and doesn't hurt that she can she can sing and that's part of the performance and she she does that equally as well so carrie mulligan number four for inside lewin davis number three and the highest rated male in this year's best supporting performance category is lakeith stanfield for short term 12 uh he gives a truly truly 
um, heartbreaking performance in this movie uh, as as one of the teens at the center uh, that is troubled. And you can, you know, there's a... He, he just... He, he, he writes music in the movie and even performs it at one point and, and watching him in that scene is, is truly tough. It's very, very tough to watch. Uh, and it is not, uh, not an easy role. You know, you get this, this real deep emotion, these, these tears that come out of him that, uh, you know, he's a character that puts on this face and, you know, he's trying to be, kind of be someone that he's not for a lot of the film and it's through the counselors uh you know john gallagher jr and brie larson that he is capable and able to uh, kind of come out of his shell and be himself and expose himself to uh everyone else and that is that is a tough transition to make that is not easy to showcase and uh he does it really easily and really well and you can you know, there are a lot of scenes uh, in the film where he's just kind of silent and he, he has to uh, be this silent, uh, expressionless character. But then, you know, it's juxtaposed with these mo- moments where, you know, he just kind of breaks down quietly. Or, and then on the other hand, these other scenes where he's, he's kind of up and, and, and jumping and, and, and vibrant and, and excitable and, you know, he, he covers the spectrum. And, you know, I mentioned how this is kind of more of an ensemble film. And, and you know, for him to stick out so much uh, around so many other fantastic performances is uh, is not easy. Um, so I, I'm super, super excited about him, about Lakeith Stanfield going forward. You know, we saw him in Get Out. Uh, he currently can be seen in Sorry to Bother You. Um or on Atlanta, he's he's a fantastic actor, and uh, Short Turn Twelve was my introduction to him, and I'm 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 a huge fan. That's number three, Lakeith Stanfield. Number two, this year's runner-up for Best Supporting Performance goes to Lupita Nyong'o for Twelve Years a Slave. Uh, so the Best Supporting Actress winner from 2013 is my runner-up for the Best Supporting Performance category this year. And Lupita Nyong'o, uh, you know, I mentioned the sort of uh, difference between um, a white and a black actor working in a movie that takes place in this time period. And, you know, if, if, if Fassbender's portrayal of a slave owner is, uh, is, is as amazing as I make it out to be, uh, Yango's performance as a slave is far better. Uh, she is the best actor in this movie, and that is stunning. You know, this is, I think, her first movie uh, ever, and she is, you know, there's, you know, she has tears streaming down her face in that whipping scene that are impossible to, to wipe away. And she makes this character into more than just uh, a slave, more than just a, a human being, more than just 
a, a person on a screen. She is she is so you know she feels just as real as Solomon Northup does in this film, and it's his film. <laughs> you know she is able to contend with that name, and it, it's it's a true true testament to her abilities to not just break down uh, what this character is and and the pain that she is going through, but also to give. Uh, the the movie this second angle you know because this is Solomon Northup's movie and you know this is his story and how you know he survived and made it back in 12 years and this moment and and his interactions with Lupita Nyong'o and his you know particularly the whipping scene uh, uh, is kind of just you know this is a scene that is told from his perspective you know he's what you know he's experiencing living on this plantation he is experiencing these hardships and yet when we hit this scene his presence fades away in my opinion it is just Lupino Nyong'o and Michael Fassbender in this scene it is all about them it is all about this very very tenuous relationship that the two have and uh the the absolute brutality of what is taking place and happening in front of us and you know it is it is very easy to to whip the air or to whip like i don't know a bag of rice or however they ended up filming that scene but it is far far different to act and and to feel as though you have been whipped uh without ever being whipped and and i'm just assuming that that Nopina Nyong'o as a person was never whipped in that manner I would hope so Uh, but you know it's it's not I don't that that, that's that's such a foreign concept uh, to people now and you know a hundred years ago different story but nowadays uh you know that's not an experience anybody really gets you know the closest you would get is is you know maybe you know you know whipped with a belt by by your parent and even that is is fewer and further between with each passing year thankfully so man uh Nyong'o is is exceptional and and fantastic in 12 years a slave and my number two of the year uh which brings us to number one this year's best supporting performance winner is Leia sedu for blue is the warmest color this is a movie that got a bit of you know it's had its own controversies uh since it came out but i would i i i just I think it is an exceptional film. I think it is a movie that portrays um, relationships beautifully and horribly at the same time. Uh, it is a film that Lea Seydoux and Adele Exarchopoulos, uh, who play the two leads, or well, I guess Adele Exarchopoulos is, is the lead and Lea Seydoux is more the supporting um, but you know the passion and fire and heartbreak and love that happens between these two. You know it is not dissimilar to um, 
uh, Celine and Jesse from before mid from, from the before the before trilogy. You know, these are Sedu and, and Exarchopolis are are two characters who clash and butt heads and fall into each other's arms and melt into each other and grate against each other throughout this film. And uh, you know, there is you know. Adele Exarchopoulos is, is is very very good in the movie, but Lea Seydoux is is on a completely another level, and she is, you know, this this she is the more mature of the two characters. She is tasked with more. She is given more responsibilities throughout the film, and she takes them on ably and amply and puts forth a performance that in my opinion you know is the best uh, supporting performance of the year and she doesn't uh, you know she's practical to the extent where you know it doesn't matter how much she loves Adele's character in this movie she is still able to uh, recognize and realize what is most important for her and it is it is it is Sedu's performance that gives you this this layer these all of these layers where she hasn't you know she doesn't want to give up on this relationship at any point and even when they're happy she's you can see that there's more going on and when she's unhappy there's still more going on and it's it's frustrating for her and it's upsetting and so much of the film revolves around just Sidhu and Exarchopolis's relationship and the way that they interact with each other and and the way they interact outside of each other which isn't a lot of the movie but is part of it and I think you know uh, Sidhu plays this jilted lover role toward the end of the film better than I'd ever seen uh, be- better than than anyone has a right to. Uh, you know, it looks like it's coming from a place of, of real pain, uh, and and whether or not that's the case, uh, you know, it, it just it comes across so beautifully. So for me, Les Do is is my best supporting performance of 2013. And uh, let's let's run down that list one more time. So starting at number 10, Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, Yoon Woo Lee for Mobius, James Gandolfini for Enough Said, Sally Hawkins for Blue Jasmine, Scarlett Johansson for Her, Michael Fassbender for 12 Years a Slave, Carrie Mulligan for Inside Lewin Davis, Lakeith Stanfield for twelve uh, for Short Term 12, Lupita Nyong'o for 12 Years a Slave, and Lea Seydoux for Blue is the Warmest Color. Now let us move into Best Original Score. That is our fifth category of the evening. And the nominees are Danny Elfman for American Hustle, Kristen Anderson Lopez, Christoph Beck, and Robert Lopez for Frozen, Stephen Price for Gravity, Arcade Fire for Her, and T-Bone Burnett and Marcus Mumford for Inside Lewin Davis. A lot of names, familiar names in this category, uh, but the one new one is Frozen, and 
Frozen is our number five in the category, so we'll talk about that first. It's an animated film that really took everybody by storm. It made ridiculous money at the box office. It features one of the most catchy, perhaps annoying, if you're a parent, uh, Disney songs in quite some time in Let It Go. Uh, And above all, it is a film known more for its music than I think anything else. And I think that is perfectly reasonable. It is a very, very beautiful, beautifully sounding movie. It has some just fantastic songs, first and foremost, but the score in and of itself is magical. Uh, it, it really is a, a score that makes you feel like you're in this wintry wonderland. You are living this, this secluded lifestyle, or you are off on this frozen adventure, and uh, that's that's... Very, I mean, that's great. I, I love that. I think it it sounds great. It complements the the music, the songs beautifully, uh, and you know provides you with this really immersive, animated uh, fairy tale experience. And that is what you want. The score is, in my opinion, um, meant to enhance many facets of of a film and uh at times uh open open the door to things you otherwise wouldn't have been aware of and i think frozen's score is very very capable at doing all of those things so uh, i'm i'm a big fan of the score and and the songs as well but this you know by extension but the score uh, is is very good and and very, very pleasing to listen to. Moving on to number four, best original score is Danny Elfman for American Hustle. Danny Elfman, uh, one of my favorite composers, and uh, American Hustle sounds great. It it has a fantastic rhythm to it. It is a fairly long film that feels clippy, uh, actually, and and transitions and. Uh, glides from one scene to the next fairly easily and I think Elfman's score is the biggest proponent of that Uh, he puts this film uh, into a position where you know he is able to I don't know play with it a lot and and you know uh, um, he understands the era. He understands uh, the 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 characters and the story so well. And you know this is generally true of all of his all of his scores. But he in, in American Hustle he really does kind of push things a little further than than is at than is norm. And I think he's rewarded in spades for it. Uh, American Hustle score is. Uh, kinetic and energetic and you know just suits the the mood of the piece so well and uh, I'm really really impressed by it constantly it it does exactly what you what I said it should it it enhances the mood it enhances what's happening and occasionally will you know tip you off to a few things that uh, you would otherwise not have been aware of um, particularly during scenes of, of tension in the film so I am a big fan of Danny Elfman's score for American Hustle. 
Number three, best original score, goes to Stephen Price for Gravity. Uh, this is a film that really can't uh, excel without the strengths of the visual effects and uh, the sound. And what's more than the sound is the score. Uh, you know, you're in space, so the sound is fairly minimal. Um, but the score is is very, very important. And the score is what kind of keeps you grounded in this film, in a sense. Uh, it acts as the sort of gravity well of everything else. And I'm really impressed by what Stephen Price was able to do with it and, and how he was able to... Um, let's see, how he was able to really pull it all together in a way that otherwise feels, could have felt, you know, very silly, very, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek. He, he distances himself from those other big space sci-fi fantasy movies, uh, which is, I think, a very, very wise decision, and tries to connect this movie to Earth more than it does he does with space you know it's a score that really feels um uh, like you're you're trying to bring someone home and and that's kind of perfect in its own way and uh, i i'm very very pleased you know i love love the score for gravity stephen price does a great job number two the team of t-bone burnett and marcus mumford uh, for Inside Lewin Davis. I'm just like the folksy songs in Inside Lewin Davis, the folksy soundtrack, the you know, it, it's it's fantastic. Um I I think it, it really cohes uh cohes um beautifully uh in this year's runner up. And uh, you know, it it's it's a style of music that you don't often hear in film outside of the Coen brothers. You know, this is not dissimilar to the sounds of Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And this is many, many years later. So there's different influences, little different adjustments made here and there for the film. You know, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I mentioned a little bit more magically, uh, magical realism going on. And Inside Lewin Davis is a little more, a lot more grounded, a lot more uh, at home with, Oscar Isaac just kind of existing and, and finding his place in the world and trying to, you know, in, escape and, and survive all of these random encounters he has. And I think it's it's a film that excels at, at the at, at doing that through its score, through not just the the original music that is performed in the movie, but outside of that, you know, just, just transitioning us from scenes to scene. Uh, really is um, it really is is just melodic and and slow but but keeping you into invested and keeping you um, honest in a sense with the film overall so really a huge fan uh, and and I love the score to inside Lewin Davis and love the movie inside Lewin Davis as well which leads us to our winner uh, our number one best score of 2013 is Arcade Fire's score for Her. Um, Arcade Fire is the, uh, I believe, the score, the, the composer, 
credited uh, in the film. But uh, this is the third win of the night for her uh, in five categories. So a very strong early showing from her this year. And it is, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it, it's a film that technically, uh, from from the screenplay down, uh, you know, and and I guess like it's unfair to disclude um, the performances and 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 the direction and and just the film as, itself, but especially from the screenplay down, uh, from the effects to to the music to to the writing, it works so beautifully together in in tandem with it, with itself, and. I think that uh, it's it's a movie that sounds like you know it's it's a soundscape that was created and and the score that accompanies the film is is so lively when it needs to be and and solemn when it needs to be and and just kind of mostly just spends its time wrapping around Joaquin Phoenix's character and and portraying him and trying to, trying to uh, sort of liven him up in a way that connects you to him. And I mentioned before how connecting to Joaquin Phoenix's character is not easy. It, it's especially early on, it, it takes some time to do it. And I think it really, you know, it's a combination of Phoenix's performance and the score that really help you get there because he is a kind of meh character and he the score tries to uh, enlighten you to to what is really going on and, and what is really happening with him and uh, just the, the emotions that he's feeling and I think uh, Arcade Fire does a great job of, of giving us exactly what we need for this movie for these characters uh, to really pull it off and make this world and this story uh, makes sense and feel real. And it's a very unnatural story uh, to a lot of people, I'm guessing. And it, it, it comes across beautifully in the fi- finished product. So uh, brilliant, brilliant score from Arcade Fire. Running down the list one more time, you've got number five, Frozen. Number four, American Hustle. I guess I should name the names. Uh, Kristen Anderson Lopez, Christoph Beck, and Robert Lopez for Frozen. Uh, you've got Danny Elfman for American Hustle. You've got Stephen Price for Gravity. You've got T-Bone Burnett and Marcus Mumford for Inside Louis Davis. And this year's best score winner is Arcade Fire for her. Well, uh, as is customary, the sixth category will always uh, be Best Original Song. And now uh, let's get into the nominees. Uh, You heard the medley earlier. Uh, Now you will hear a bit of a snippet from each song uh, as they are announced. And the nominees are... From what period? From God's Perspective. I don't think masturbation is obscene. It's absolutely natural and the weirdest fucking thing I've ever seen. You make my job a living hell. I send gays to fix overpopulation. And boy, did that go well. From Frozen, Let It Go. Don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. 
conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. From short term 12, life's like so put me in your book so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like put a label on my head so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like look into my eyes so you know what it's like look into my eyes so you know what it's like look into my eyes so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like from begin again lost stars tell us the reason Youth is wasted on the young It's hunting season And this lamb is on the run We're searching for meaning But are we all lost stars Trying to light up the dark From inside Lewin Davis Please, Mr. Kennedy. Are you reading me loud and clear? Oh, please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh oh. I don't want to go so slow. Five nominees. Uh, we have two films uh, getting their first nominations in this category. And as it would, I believe, turn out. Um, only nominations uh, in what and begin again but the number five film the number five song from this year is not one of them it is let it go from frozen uh, i mentioned just how big of a hit this song was it really is a huge pop cultural hit that everyone at least knows the let it go let it go part of and you know, that's great. I mean, that's that's great. That's you want your music to stick in people's minds, uh, even if it does it a little more than some of us would like, especially for "Let It Go." Uh, the song itself uh, is 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 pretty. It's beautiful. It's perfectly positioned within the movie, and and really does make a lot of sense and um, kind of hits on a few emotional beats for Idina Menzel's character of um, Elsa, but. I do think the song is fairly average, in relatively speaking. Um, there are many other songs from Frozen that I prefer listening to, uh, besides "Let It Go," and it is rather the not that I think that they are that much better written or that much better performed than "Let It Go." Obviously, none of them made the list, and "Let It Go" did. I think "Let It Go" is emotionally resonant within the movie, and I think it is. Um, a strong song and, and impeccably performed by Adina Menzel. She has a fantastic voice, and it's it's impressive that she is as as brilliant as she is in this song. So I don't disparage the song. I just think that um, it it does leave me leave me feeling a little lacking at, in in some instances. So. My number five, uh, Let It Go from Frozen. My number four is from a new movie. That's Begin Again. This is the only nomination tonight for Begin Again. 
with the nomin with uh, the song Lost Stars. Um, this is a song similar to uh, Remember Me from Coco. It is a song that is performed multiple times throughout the movie uh, from different people with different intentions, with different um, tones. Uh, you get Kira Knightley and you get um, Adam Levine both singing the song and, and uh, doing very different renditions of it. And uh, the uh, I chose the Kira Knightley version for uh, the episode um, because I think that it is more in line with what the intention was. I think um, while I do believe that Adam Levine's voice is better than Kira Knightley's, I think her rendition of the song is more emotional. It's more impactful. It's more meaningful within this within the constraints. Uh, confines of the film and really ev- is more evocative all in all uh, as as a piece of music so I, I'm a big fan of Keira Knightley's song uh, rendition of Lost Stars uh, it's a you know it, it doesn't it's it's a it kind of suffers from the same thing that Let It Go does I think it's a very straightforwardly written song in a lot of aspects um, but I do think that it does find itself a little bit more nuance, a little bit more uh, complexity than Let It Go had, and I appreciate that. I, I think that's meaning that means a lot, and I think that's kind of what gives it the little bit of an edge over Let It Go. I, I love Lost Stars. I think it's a fantastic song, and yeah, Lost Stars, begin again. Number three is Life's Like from Short Term 12. This is the song performed by Lakeith Stanfield's character, uh, the rap that he does. Um, it's it's not, you know, there's no music behind it really. It's just him rapping and, and something he wrote, his character wrote. And I think it is very, very powerful. I think it is very important. I think it more than... Mm, maybe barely less than one of the other songs on this list it is uh, the most um, well put together and and well positioned song in the movie that it is in Uh, I think it is representative of not just Lakeith Stanfield's character but you also get John John Gallagher Jr. listening to this listening to Lakeith Stanfield rap this song and feeling the emotion and and the burning energy inside of him and that is in itself a a very uh, meaningful moment and I think the lyrics are are brilliant I think they are sufficiently written as if they could have as if Lakeith like I don't know I don't know who wrote the lyrics but like I believe Lakeith Stanfield's character um, would come up with these you know they don't feel more professional than that they don't feel more elementary than that and it it really does suit the situation the scene the the environment the relationship between those two characters in that moment and uh, i just i'm a big fan of it Uh, so my number three first song is life's like from short term 12 runner up runner up for best original song comes from bo burnham's stand-up special what so a little bit of a controversy uh, before we really get into the song itself 
what is considered i put it as like a documentary i don't know it's like on netflix and it's not a feature film but neither is a you know documentary really or a short film and and you know like those are perfectly quite qualifiable it's easily the biggest stretch and and category fraud i've considered and tried to reason with myself but i think it is you know it you know if if kevin hart's let me explain and and things like that can be released in in a theater i don't see why those wouldn't be qualified so uh you know it's not a traditional film in the same sense but it is counts counts for me so what's song from god's perspective and this is a song uh i mean i guess it can be a little bit divisive a little bit um one-sided, but I think when you listen to the whole song in the context of it, it's it's not really disparaging religion or anything like that. From the from my perspective, I think it's it's addressing the overall um, just just relationship uh, between human beings and an, uh, a greater deity uh, should such a thing exist, and I think. Uh, obviously, the song I think, from my point of view, is incredibly funny. But more than that, and I think this is what I, I love so much about Bo Burnham and all of his music, and and even you know Eighth Grade, which has recently come out. I I just I love how uh, as funny as most of his stand up, as most of his routines, his songs are, they have such a great deeper layer to them. And I think this song. Uh, perfectly exemplifies that uh not only is it talking about um kind of the supposed uh, misconstruction misconstrued elements that are involved with with humans and a deity but it also goes beyond that it, it also tries to expose um how how you know the there's the, the hypocrisy that that comes with all of that and and the the lack of faithfulness and what it really means to say that you believe in a god and those are tough things to do just normally talking and i think the, that he can do that in a song and make it rhyme and also make it funny but make it poignant uh all of that is is really impressive and um, you know the song itself is good. It, it's it sounds good. You know he's not a classically trained singer, but his voice sounds good with this song. And I don't know. It just it, it works really really well. It's it's you know there's a mul- multiple points in the song where he kind of breaks the the lyrics to talk, and um, you know he addresses the issue of. Of, of rape um, and and of eating pork and so it's not just lambasting uh, lambasting Christianity or Catholicism you know he touches on Judaism and Islam and and it's it's of everything is, is fair game and it treats everything equally and I, I appreciate that I think that that's a, a, a good way and you know for even for that matter I think atheists are are not 
left out of the equation. You know, they are mentioned in the song as well, and uh, it, it, there's just a lot going on in the song, but it never feels overwhelming. You know, it's it's calm, it's 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 soothing, and I think for that, I, I, I really think that this is one of the better songs he's ever written and um, performed, and it's one of my favorites as as well. So for me, runner-up this year, from God's perspective. And that means that our winner uh, tonight for Best Original Song, first win of the evening for, uh, and only win, because this is the last nomination, for Inside Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin Davis, the song Please Mr. Kennedy, performed by Oscar Isaac, Justin Timberlake, and Adam Driver. Uh, This is the song that you will frequently hear sampled for my top 10 list uh, break um, with the 10987654321 sequence. And um, it is just such an off-the-wall, oddball song that, to be honest, like... It, it's it's position in the movie and its um, its relationship with the characters involved and surrounding it is tenuous, I think, at best. And yet there is just something about it that it is the moment, it is the scene in this movie that I kind of really keep falling back on. It is the one that I think about most often. It is uh, the song from this movie that I find myself listening to most often. And it's it's very odd. It's very strange. And it, it really does kind of encompass, in my opinion, the the overarching emotion and feel of this movie. It is a movie with a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different angles uh, portrayed, you know, comparative, uh, comparable to the three men performing this song. It is a movie that, you know, you can see Oscar Isaac. He is very subdued within the song. He's very subdued within the movie. But then you have these characters on either side of him that are loud or obnoxious or or just kind of like rolling over top of him or or coming out from behind him and and just impacting everything about him and i think that sense of this song and its uh relationship to everything else is really uh what um what makes it stand out among above everything else for me so i'm a big fan of please mr kennedy I'm a big fan of this song quite a bit, and I, I I really do think it earns its win this year as my favorite original song from 2013. So to run down that list one more time, you have Let It Go from Frozen, you have Lost Stars from Begin Again, you have Life's Like from Short Term 12 at number three, you have We Think We Know You at number two from What Period, and for number one, Best original song winner, please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside Lewin Davis. We are now going to move on to the next category, which is best lead performance. Best lead performance. And the nominees are coming up right now in just one second. Here we go. Here we go. Nominees are... Amy Adams for American Hustle, Lake Bell for In a World Ellipses, Kate Blanchett for Blue Jasmine, Julie Delpy for Before Midnight, Leonardo DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street, Chiwetel Ejiofor, 12 Years a Slave, Tom Hanks, 
Captain Phillips, Tom Hardy, Locke, Brie Larson, Short Term 12, and Kyung Soul for Hope. Man, uh, moving into number 10. We're just going to jump right into this. Uh, number 10 is Kate Blanchett for Blue Jasmine. Uh, she is the Oscar winner for Best Actress, um, but similar to Jared Leto, barely makes the lead, lead performance list for me uh, for this year. I think she's exceptional in this movie. I think she's great. Um, but I, I do think, uh, I, I feel like the the wave of support that she had in, in 2013 was a touch, a touch overblown, uh, in my opinion. I do feel like Sally Hawkins uh, really goes toe-to-toe with her. And I think that the lead performances were just stronger this year than the supporting ones were. So uh, for that, I, I think Kate Blanchett is fantastic just in general. I think she's very, very good in this movie. And, uh, you know, I credit Woody Allen for, you know, giving her this character to really explore and, and dive into and stretch her arms in. But um, I think, it, I, I don't know, the movie I think is pretty good, but not great. And I think that, unfortunately, some of the elements of that drag the limitations of the performance down a, a, a bit. And I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I, I don't know. I, I just, I like it. I don't love the performance. And I, I like it. I think it's a very, very good. I, I think Kate Blanchett is hard-pressed to find a, find a bad Kate Blanchett performance at all. And this is certainly not one of them. It just isn't the best one. Uh, so for me, Kate Blanchett from Blue Jasmine is my number 10. Number 9 is Lake Bell from In a World. Uh, this is a movie that I, I think deserves a lot more credit than it, than it gets. Um, Lake Bell, uh, I believe, directed and wrote the film as well. Uh, yes, she did. And stars in it she is a fantastic character uh she has to deal with a lot of other different characters from of a wide variety of of ranges and types and and styles and tropes and her performance just comes across so naturally uh you know i could even argue that it might even be exactly how she acts in real life but i i know that at least from a professional side of things she is not a voice coach Uh, she's an actor writer director and she just she just has this this um, brilliant and fantastic uh, presentation and and conduction of of her body and and the way she presents herself in this movie. And there's so much confidence going on there, especially which which is interesting because you know she's a character that. She plays a character that really does have a lot of confidence in themselves, but is constantly met with rejection and uh, and disparaged. And that is something that would really knock down a confident person. And yet I think the, that her character in this movie is able to kind of rise above that and, and push beyond that in a very difficult-to-portray way. And so I think, like, Belle is, is really, really good and... and earned this this nomination in my opinion so lake bell number nine moving on to number eight we have chiwetel edgy of four 12 years a slave uh 
Um, this is, like I, I mentioned before, talking about uh, Nyong'o and Fassbender, uh, this is Edgy Four's story, and it feels that way. Uh, you know, he is, he is very, very present throughout the entire film. He is in front of you. He is exposing himself. He is vulnerable. You see him crying, and he gets plenty of moments. Uh, you know, the, that fantastic line, you know, I don't want to survive, I want to live, uh, is, is delivered so beautifully and so heart-wrenchingly powerfly. And uh, it, it really, he feels like the, per, he feels like Solomon Northup. He feels like he was that person. And that's, 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 that's fantastic. That, that is a really tough job. And, uh, you know, he does it. You know, I, I, I harped on, you know, how difficult it is for anybody to really go back to the times of slavery and and portray a character on any at any level of that world and you know edgy four is playing a completely different variation of that world than either nyango or fassbender were playing you know he was not 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 a slave to start out with he was a free black man uh at the start of this movie and he has to go through the experience of becoming a slave throughout the process and at the time, you know, that would have been something on every single mind uh, of a free person, of a free uh, person. And, you know, the, the fear that this might happen to you at any, tur- at any turn down a street, at any, any door that opens, and for it to happen, and, and for Edgy Four to have to portray that, that mindset, that complexity, that, that um it just it just uh that's that's incredibly taxing and incredibly difficult in my opinion uh and and it it really it just adds a whole other layer to things uh and i think he he struggles to to find a way to you know, be happy, and yet you can see the the hope coming out of his eyes, coming out of his face throughout the film, and, you know, I don't know, even just pretending to be in that situation that I could even fake hope as well as Ejiofor does, and, and that's a testament to how, how great this performance is. He's, he's exceptional in this film, uh, truly, truly exceptional. So my number eight is Chiwetel Ejiofor. My number seven uh, is um, is from the movie Hope, and that's Kyunggu Soul. Uh, this is a uh, film from Lee Jun Ik, uh, who is a, a South Korean director. Um, Hope is a movie about a young girl uh, who is brutally assaulted sexually and the process of her family uh, trying to cope with everything that has happened. And um, Kyunggu Seoul plays the father in the movie. And his arc and his journey uh, is pretty, is, is, I would say, the lead. Uh, you know, the mother is, is a supporting character, the daughter is a supporting character. But Kyunggu Seoul is the lifeblood of this movie. 
there are multiple, you know, he, he suffers the most um, extra, uh, as far as um, the, the re- uh, repercussions of the assault itself. Uh, you know, not obviously as much as the daughter did, but uh, as far as in, in the wake of the assault itself, you know, he suffers far more than the mother does. Because what, what really happens is the, the assault comes from an older gentleman and the daughter doesn't want anything to do with men. She won't let her dad near her. She won't let him talk to her. She won't talk to him. She won't look at him. And for a good portion of the movie, he's, he's relegated to standing outside of her hospital room. He is unable to go in and, like, he won't let himself go in and see his daughter because he knows it only hurts her when he's in there. And that is, that is tough. That is, that is a really, really tough circumstance. And more than that, you know, portraying that and, you know, finding a place inside of you that can express that confliction, that, you know, you love your daughter so much and that you would purposefully keep yourself away from her because it hurts her. That is, that is a tough thing to do and a tough thing to portray and and you know there are far more and and i mean the movie gets a little a lot further than that even uh without going into too many spoilers i think kyungu soul is uh, he he just he manages to come across uh incredibly sympathetic and empathetic to his daughter's needs and desires and slowly figures out a way to it takes him a while but he does figure out a way to satisfy both of their um both sides of their emotions you know he's able to make do with the situation that he is in and still comfort his daughter and and that is so important and i think he he just really Man, his face, the the facial expressions that he has, the the pain, the tension inside of every muscle, you can really feel it. it it's it's so palpable on on him. You know the way he leans against the wall in the waiting area, and how he can't he he can't quite keep all of these things inside of him when somebody talks to him you know even just a random person you know he you can feel this anguish wanting to burst out of his mouth and uh it doesn't always uh you know he's he's able to hold it down as best as he can you know he has an incredibly strong will and i think kyungu soul just captures all of that beautifully and it is a thankless uh role for most of the movie, and he, he, he's, he's incredible in it, he's really, really incredible, so for me, number seven, Kyungu Soul for Hope. Number six uh, is Tom Hanks for Captain Phillips, this is, I, I mean, this is, it's, it's Tom Hanks, so already, you're, you're starting off on a good foot, he is, in my opinion, the best performance that he's given in the last five years, hands down. Uh, the, he, his, his performance in this movie is gut-wrenching. And it's 
starts out, you know, he is this, you know, he is the captain of the ship. He is boarded by these Somali pirates, and he's a strong guy. He he knows what he's doing. He knows how to combat a lot of these things. He can he can um, match wits uh, easily with these pirates. Uh, but but he is outnumbered. Um, he is generally out resourced, and he is clawing his way to figure out how to keep as many people alive as possible. Uh, while also keeping himself alive, and and all of those are, are very up in the air questions, and you know Tom Hanks, not a young guy, uh, even then five years ago, still not a young guy, and this role asks a lot of him physically, and he is up to the task. He is able to keep up with you know Barkat Abdi, uh, and and the rest of the pirates as well as the rest of his crew who. If I'm not mistaken, I think every single other person on this boat ends up being younger than him. Maybe one or two of his crew are, are his age. And, you know, we, we go through the the um, boarding the ship and taking over and, you know, the I'm the captain now line, fantastic line. Uh, it, it just, you know, it sends... It continually push pushes the circumstances into a more and more dire situation, and Hanks is, you know, he refuses to let that show. You know, he doesn't give in to the hopelessness, and you don't see that on his face uh, explicitly. You can kind of feel in the way he moves and the way he he conducts himself. You know, this is he he can he doesn't even have the time to give in to the hopelessness. He can only think about making this work and getting out of here alive until the end of the movie. And man, what an ending. Uh, just, just that is like the highlight reel for, for Tom Hanks. Like it deserves to be on the list of like the best scenes he's ever done for sure. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that more later, but I, I just, oh man, that, that ending just gets me every time. So Captain Phillips, Tom Hanks, number six, best lead actor for the year. Number five is Brie Larson for Short Term 12. Uh, this is, um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, this is her second nomination. She previously won for her lead performance in Room. This is a few years before that. This is kind of when she really began to pull in notice for, for what she could do and how and what her her skills really were in short term twelve. Um, I already mentioned Lakeith Stanfield uh, and his his um, which was I mean it was a breakout for him too. And Brie Larson on top of that is fantastic in this movie. She breaks down. She has her own emotional. Uh, revelations and arcs um, that coincide with a handful of different characters throughout the film, John Gallagher Jr. Uh, and and so forth. Um, the octopus story scene, which I will be talking about later, is is a brutal, heartbreaking scene um, when she destroys the car. Uh, the just the raw emotion, you know. Contrary to someone uh, like, uh, contrary to the performances that Hanks and Edgy for give in Captain Phillips in Twelve Years. You know, those are very 
restraint emotional uh, performances for a majority of the films. Like both of them kind of let the waterworks fly towards the end, but for a majority of those films, they are holding it in. And uh, in my opinion, Short Term 12, Brie Larson lets things uh, kind of seep out a lot more. You can kind of feel the emotion and the passion radiating out of her um, in, in, a, in a very effective way. You know, she is far younger of a person and character than either of these other two people. She is dealing with a lot of other kids who are younger than her who are also struggling to contain their own emotions. And so, you know, on one side, she kind of has to keep it all bottled up for their sake. But on the other side, she's just constantly surrounded by all these people who are exposing themselves and, and coming to terms with their own problems. And she's influenced by that. And she's kind of in a position where she also feels the need to do the same thing. You know, they're not that much younger than she is. And uh, that's the, the disparity is, is far smaller than you would think. So I, I love Brie Larson in this. I think she does a fantastic job of supporting the supporting cast in their moments to shine. And also, when need be, she is perfectly able of uh, taking over the leading role and, and bearing the weight of this film on her shoulders as as only a, a brilliant actor could do. So for me, number five is Brie Larson from Short Term 12. Number four is Julie Delpy from Before Midnight. Uh, she, in my opinion, so, uh, you know, tracking the Before trilogy, you know, is not difficult you know it, it, they all take place within the span of about 24 hours generally less than that and the the space and distance that these characters that Delpy and and Hawk play in the movies uh, travel incredible lengths in both of, in in these short periods of time and while sunrise and sunset are far more positive far more um, burgeoning love as far as what they're trying to accomplish before midnight is the opposite uh, before midnight is exposing the underbelly the seedy underbelly of relationships and you know it doesn't matter how in love you are with someone you are never going to be uh, without argument without fighting it, it just doesn't happen and this is one such moment for this star-crossed couple and for me um at least in this film uh, julie delpy is is the the best in show i think she uh, ethan hawk is fantastic in the film too but i think julie delpy is just a cut above and you know you you get these moments of of just seething seething hatred between both of them and Julie Delpy is, uh, you know, you contrast her with how she plays Celine in in Sunrise and Sunset, and it, it just it's like a whole other side to her. You know, there's no, you know, it's not it's it's just her ability to to sort of adjust and um, 
sink into this role deeper and you know this is how Celine would fight this is how she would claw and she isn't you know scrappy of a fighter she is very much more of a cast downward type of type of engaging person if that makes sense I guess what a better way to describe it would be um, when they're fighting and, and at each other's throats, you know, Ethan Hawke is the scrappy one. He's throwing as many barbs as he can at her while she is kind of just like putting him down and, you know, very matter of fact. And uh, that is a good thing. That, that not, a, not a good thing, but like that is a good approach to this circumstance. And, and I love that that's because that makes sense. You know, when you look at the previous films, um, Ethan Hawke is a lot more not uncultured, but unrefined in a sense. You know, he he speaks his character uh, Jesse speaks with more um, with rougher edges, whereas Celine is is very thoughtful. She she knows what she's saying. She she doesn't really stumble over what her words are, and that comes across in you know the sweet nothings that they talk, say to each other in previous films and in you know the you know, the haymakers that they throw each other in before midnight. And I, I think the extension of this character is just so wonderful and so beautiful and so painful, uh, especially if you really care about them, uh, as I do. So for me, I love Julie Delpy in this. Um, she she really puts on a classic, and uh, it it's, you know, I think the... From you know what what really draws it draws the line kind of between the two of them is that when they're both on screen, I'm drawn to Delpy, and I'm I'm watching her reactions, I'm watching her face and how she's responding to what he says and how she kind of like rears herself up and like at back uh, throws everything back at him and I, I don't know I just I just really respond to Julie Delpy in this movie and I think. She's, in fact, she's fantastic. So, number four, Before Midnight, Julie Delpy. Number three uh, is American Hustle, Amy Adams. Uh, Amy Adams. And uh, American Hustle, you know, kind of had a ton of press, ton of publicity when it came out. It got a ton of Oscar nominations, and it went home on empty-handed. It got four acting award, uh, four acting nominations for Adams, for Bale, for... Jennifer Lawrence and for Bradley Cooper and not to say that the rest of them aren't good everyone in that movie gives a good performance but Amy Adams is just stellar she's just stellar uh, we I referenced her with regards to her um, you know she plays the real life female interest I guess in in her opposite Joaquin Phoenix and, uh, but in American Hustle, she is just the most powerful character in the movie. Uh, not necessarily from a money or, or position standpoint, but from just a confidence standpoint. She is um, unflinching. And, you know, I, I think that is, and this is like, this is a period piece. You know, this is a time where that sort of a female character wouldn't, uh, probably wouldn't get a lot of respect. She would get a lot of um, disgust, disdain. Uh, you know, this isn't a time where 
I mean, we're still not really in a time where a incredibly confident and powerful woman is capable of earning the respect of her peers necessarily. Uh, but in this movie, man, like you you see her walk through a room, you know, she is, you know, at, you know, Bradley Cooper or, or Christian Bale's side and, and just whoever she's with and and nobody seems more in control of a situation than she does in this movie uh and not to say not that this not that her character is without her her downbeats and her arc of course but i think man amy adams just puts more life into this role than than anyone else could have to be honest i it's it's a really really fascinating character and one that i i it, you know absolutely loved watching on screen just watching her interact with the rest of this cast who are all fantastic and seeing her kind of just I, I don't know just like dance around them uh and make it look so much easier uh is is fascinating and i i just think just think it's really good amy adams for american hustle is my number Three and uh, the best female of the year at number three. Our runner-up, our runner-up, uh, and the last two nominees uh, would future would co-star in the Revenant together. This year's runner-up is Tom Hardy from Locke. Uh, this movie is only Tom Hardy. He's the only thing on the screen, and that kind of tells you all you need to know. He is. An exceptional actor. He spends 98% of the movie behind the steering wheel of a car on the phone or talking to himself. Uh, and that does not sound like a recipe for tension or uh, engagement or, um, you know, any anything else. But, man, if he doesn't make this movie just... just ooze with with emotion and it's it's incredibly kinetic he he you know he he can't even walk he can't like like take a step in any direction he is sitting in a car for the entire film on the phone constantly calling and recalling and calling back and people calling him and musing aloud to himself and that is somehow manages to be one of the most fascinating uh not only performances, but films of the year. I think that uh, his composure, you know, his demeanor is phenomenal. You know, Tom Hardy, you know, known for playing roles where most of his face is covered up. Here, you just see his face. That's all you see for the whole movie. And it shows just how powerful and expression-filled his eyes and mouth and and jaw it, it can all be. You know, the things he does with his hands and how he grips the steering wheel and, and the way he responds to a call or, or, you know, even the subtle little things are all fascinating and are all just so filled with character and and practiced skill and uh it it just there's there's no real limitation it feels like to 
this character within the confines of this car. He feels so much larger than life. He feels like he's, at times, he feels like he's able to handle all of these problems, all of these conflicts that are cropping up, and then five minutes later, everything is falling apart around him. And that dichotomy is is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And so I, I love him in this movie. I think... I, I don't know anyone else who could have pulled this off uh, as well as him. You know, he's not, especially in 2013, you know, he wasn't a huge name, really. Uh, he was, you know, because, like, even at this point, Bane, like, nobody really saw his face as Bane. Uh, it's it's just a lot of great, great things going on uh, for him. And I think... Uh, you know, it, it just, it just, it it looked so easy, and yet it had to have been so difficult, and I think he, he pulls it off brilliantly, brilliantly. So my runner-up, number two of the year, from Locke, is Tom Hardy, which means best lead performance, Circle of Film Award winner for 2013 goes to Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street. Uh... What 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 can I really say about this movie? Um, it's really long. Scorsese directed it, and DiCaprio is an animal in this movie. Literally an animal, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, exactly. And his he he is you know he 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 spans the gambit spans everything in this movie he goes from you know this you know this this money grubbing party man on this yacht uh to you know to this guy completely zonked out of his mind on quaaludes uh to you know he's he's mentoring to uh jonah hill's character to being mentored from michael matthew mcconaughey and so on and so on and so on and so on and you know there are so many angles and sides to this movie uh, that are all kind of shown through DiCaprio, and he is on the top of his game. Uh, this the the Quaalude scene is, uh, you know, will come up again later, and he is just phenomenal in it. He is just off of the wall, insane, and you know his relationship with Margot Robbie in the movie is tenuous at best and you know he you know from her great performance you know he is able to you know he he it's one of the few situations where he's not always in control when he's on screen with her and even in those moments he he pull he he manages to make it feel like yeah this is the same guy you know he he would be kind of on his back foot in these exchanges uh and just the expressions on his face and uh, the, the physicality that he just presents in this movie where he feels larger than life. And, and I, can, I think you can ascribe some of that to Scorsese. And when we get to the best director category, we'll talk about it. But I think more than, man, maybe any role since uh, Gilbert Grape even, you know, the, the commitment to this character for DiCaprio is is unbelievable. So 
for me, number one best lead performance of the year goes to Leonardo DiCaprio for Wolf of Wall Street. And that is, um, I mean, he's just great. He's just great. Leonardo DiCaprio. That puts us down to three categories to go. Uh, we have um, only her has multiple awards at this point with three wins for tactile effects, original score, and screenplay. The next category is best scene. Best scene. And the nominees are Hanging from 12 Years a Slave, Breakup from Blue is the Warmest Color, Shock from Captain Phillips, Octopus Story for Short Term 12, and Quaaludes from Wolf of Wall Street. So I've kind of referenced a lot of these these scenes already, but we will start at the bottom and, and touch on them as we go. Uh, one that I definitely haven't is the hanging scene from 12 Years a Slave. Uh, this is the most gut-wrenching scene for me of the movie. Uh, it's a long take of Northup uh, in a noose uh, on a tree, and he just kind of spins around and, and dangles there, barely able to touch his toes to the ground and keep himself from dying. As he kind of chokes and sputters and, and watches dozens and dozens of people walk, by, walk around him. They see him. They don't acknowledge him. They don't try to help him. Uh, I mean, the vast majority of them are slaves, so they really don't have that opportunity or option to do so and it is it just it keeps going it feels like you know a, a you know if it wasn't steve mcqueen I, you know maybe not every director would have even put this in the movie but like just this is a scene that would normally be like five to 15 seconds long and it feels like it's five minutes long it feels like it takes forever and it is truly heartbreaking to watch uh you know more so than uh the the whipping scene which is is a fantastic fantastic scene in its own right it probably ranks sixth or seventh on the year for me uh but this hanging scene um, more so than the performances uh is is beautifully crafted and constructed and presented and uh by doing so little, it, it accomplishes and says so, so very much. And I just, I can't. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's overwhelming. My number four scene uh, is the breakup scene in Blue is the Warmest Color. It comes towards the end of the film. Uh, and Lea Seydoux and Adele Exarchopoulos are not, you know, they've, they've been together most of this film, they have been happy most of this film, and then, you know, the cracks begin to form, and uh, they, they, it all kind of comes to a head, and you've got this scene where you have Adele Exarchopoulos kind of pleading and, and crying and asking for uh, Seydoux to let her in, to let them talk, to keep going, to try again, to do more, to something, she just wants something, she's apologizing, she's She's wronged Seydoux, and, and she, she can't really take it back, and she's trying to find some glimmer of hope, some, some silver lining, some 
loophole to get back into that relationship and Seydoux will have none of it and she is pained it it obviously hurts her she is you know tears streaming down her face she is angry she is hurt she is upset and uh man if you know that is I, I kind of referenced it talking about her in the best supporting performance category this is the best scene not of the movie but for her performance this is a culmination of all of her passion in in the relationship and all of it kind of boiling over and starting to uh, just splash around on the burner. Uh, it, 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 it's painful. It's, it's awful. It looks awful. It feels awful. You, throughout this scene, you, you feel on the side of both women at different points. Uh, you, you, and as much as you think that one character may deserve the circumstances that are, that are happening to them, you also can see this the pain on that person's face and how difficult it is and you want them all to be happy and and they can't be and it sucks <laughs> it sucks uh so my number 4 is the breakup scene in blue is the warmest color my number 3 is shock from captain phillips uh shock is the ending scene where tom hanks is rescued off the boat uh saved everybody and i mentioned how restrained and subdued his emotions were through most of the film and this is where they all come out and he is incoherent he uh, barely can he can't even hear what's happening around him you know he has someone talking to him and he kind of really just ignores them and he's just he's asking questions and and looking and searching for something he probably isn't even sure he knows he wants the answer to and you know it's it's just he's he's in shock he cannot cannot comprehend what just happened he cannot reconcile that he's even out of the situation and it is heartbreaking to see him this way uh, you know because we spend so much of this movie with with Captain Phillips as this strong man, as this strong person who is able to attack and meet everything that comes at him head on, who is able to take on this band of pirates like almost by himself. And not only can he best them, he saves all of these people in the process. He is an incredibly strong person. And then to watch him in this in this final scene just completely come apart is really difficult and uh the the headspace for for tom hanks to put himself in for this moment to to get to this this far in the film and then have to kind of undo all of these walls he's kind of put up around himself to be able to to feel and be as strong as he he it has to be uh that is that is a feat unto itself and you know you can i'm pretty sure you can find this clip on on youtube it is devastating so for me number three is shock from captain phillips uh and that leaves us with our runner-up the best scene of the year for me and that would be the quaalude scene from wolf of wall street everyone 
I think, that has seen this movie remembers this scene. Uh, it is talked about, you know, we there were a lot of references to it with the scene for Chris Pratt in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom this year, and when he's escaping the lava, very similar. This is that scene times, like, three million. Like, DiCaprio, far better actor than Chris Pratt. Uh, and this scene goes on far longer than the Chris Pratt scene. You know, he is zonked out, completely inca- in- incapable of, of controlling his fac- uh, faculties. He um, rolls himself down the steps of his house, drags himself into, the, into a car, somehow is able to drive over to Jonah Hill's, <laughs> over to, to where Jonah Hill is, uh, rips the, and like, he, he can't walk, he has trouble like grabbing things, um, he can barely keep his head up, like all of his, his body is, is dysfunction, is, is not functioning properly, and it is a scene that is hilarious, uh, but it is also a scene that, you know, there's an urgency to it, there's a you know, this is a moment in, in there, like, he has to get Joan Hill off of the phone, and he is in the perfectly worst state to do that, uh, so it, it is incredibly comical, but there's definitely, the, you know, Scorsese is able to give it this enough tension where you laugh, but then you're right back in the scene, you laugh, and then you're right back you know, with him and and on the edge of your seat waiting to see if he's able to make it over to Jonah Hill, if he can get the phone out of his hand. And when we get to Jonah Hill, he's also out of his mind insane. Uh, It just, all of it is is so incomprehensible and and ridiculous and perfect in its own way. It's, It's truly fantastic. What a beautiful scene. Especially when you add in just, just Leonardo DiCaprio's voiceover the whole time like him narrating like oh i can't do this can't do that can't do this can't do that it's it's great i love it it's great it's great it's great okay uh which makes the the best scene of the year uh octopus story from short term 12 now if you haven't seen short term 12 let me see if i can describe this um this story a bit uh so the shark and octopus story is told by um one of the residents at uh the the uh, facility that brie larson works and she's talking to this girl and the girl wrote the story and she's explaining the story to brie larson and it basically goes like um the shark asks the octopus to be his friend and the octopus says, what do I have to do for that? And the shark says, just let me eat one of your arms. And since the octopus had never had a friend before, she doesn't know that that's not what you do when you have a friend. And given that the octopus has eight arms, she lets him eat one. And then uh, they became friends. And every day that week, they would spend time together and the shark would they would have fun they'd go play and at the end of the day the shark would ask for another arm and eventually 
the shark asks for all of her arms. And then he ate uh, the octopus. And so he, he then felt very sad and he no longer had a friend. And so he went off to find another one. And the, the problem, it, it's, the story itself is, is incredibly sad and, and, and very uh, heartbreaking to, to listen to and hear. Um, but more than that, it, it, it's... It, it's, it's a very painful scene to watch because... For a moment, you feel like, okay, this is a character, this, this girl is a character who, you know, has given her all to friendship and to other people, and they have not treated her well. They have not treated her the way that she believes she deserves to be treated. She is hurt, um, and, and she feels like this is the circumstance that she is in. And that, that sucks, firstly, but it's also kind of, you, you can reread that, that story and how it plays out as a way of, you know, thinking that uh, these are character, this character has felt so abused. This is a character who has been hurt by the people that she trusts and uh, believes that, or at least at, at one point believed that that was the only way for her to be loved. And this is, uh, it's, it's so awful uh, to not only watch, but to think about and, and how it happened and, and the path that got us to that point. It, it really is disparaging and and painful to see play out and and you have brie larson on the on the bed or or sitting next to her uh just just completely engrossed in um this story and and what's happening and it it really does kind of you know, you get this sense of, you know, she doesn't want her to feel this way. She wants her to come across as, you know, she, she can almost feel it in her own self. She can feel and connect with the way this story connects to her and how she's experienced these same things. And you can see that in her face. And she's at a point in her life where she managed to come to terms with what took place for her and how to push past it and overcome it and and rise above it and she wants to have that uh for this other girl and she wants to uh make it you know make it easier and and give her someone who can love her and be her friend and care about her that doesn't ask anything from her that doesn't ask uh that she give parts of herself away and uh, suffer or anything like that. And at the end of the story, you know, what what I love, and, and Destin Daniel Cretton does this so beautifully uh, in his direction, 
you know, it's not a big emotional, you know, speech moment. It's just Brie Larson putting her arm around this girl, edging closer and, and just being there and just being present for her and, and caring. And, and that is so powerful. It is such a powerful moment. And I, I can't stress how much I love that more than, than that. I, I think it's incredible. So strong. So for me, uh, best scene is Octopus Story from Short Term 12. Running down the five again, uh, you have Hanging from Short Term 12, uh, Breakup from Blue is the Warmest Color, Shock from Captain Phillips, Quaaludes from Wolf of Wall Street, and Octopus Story from Short Term 12. And the penultimate category of the night Um as we always leave Best Picture as the best and final category. The penultimate category this year is Best Director. And the nominees are... Alfonso Cuaron, Gravity. Spike Jones, Her. Stephen Knight, Locke. Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave. And Martin Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street. Starting with number five in the director's seat, we have Stephen Knight for Locke. Uh, Locke, as I mentioned with Tom Hardy, it's just on his face the whole time. And that requires a specific skill to pull that off and make that engaging and make that worth watching. Uh, But it is not, in my opinion, it's not an all-encompassing directorial effort you know so since so much of this movie rests on tom hardy's shoulders it did knock Stephen knight down a little bit for me but you cannot deny that you know using the different camera angles you know using the rear view mirror and the side mirrors and the different shots and the ways that they approach tom hardy and giving him these different angles all these directorial choices uh you know making specific uh you know corrections and adjustments you know he suppose uh, reportedly the film was shot three times front to end and uh then just used the best takes of each one and it's it was probably uh mostly um stephen knight who was in part was part of this process and helping and making sure that the best version of each of each cut was what of of each take was in each was was where it was supposed to be and you know making lining everything up and uh, you know factoring in all of these voices that are coming in over the phone and 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 giving Tom Hardy what he needs to really you know stay in this character and be this this person and be Locke you know that that requires a lot of outside influence from Knight and I think he he was more than able and more than capable of of, st- of, of accomplishing that task. <clears throat> so number five for me, Stephen Knight for Locke. Number four uh, for Wolf of Wall Street is Martin Scorsese. Now, uh, you know, people think, you know, Scorsese has had a long and storied career. Wolf of Wall Street is is one of many fantastic films that he has made in his lifetime. And part of what drops him out of the top of this list is just it's a kind of scattered story 
uh, and he doesn't restrain it and pull it in with as I think he does with many of the movies he's made. And that might have been a conscious decision. I think the story is all over the place because I think uh, DiCaprio's character is all over the place. And that's perfectly fine, but it doesn't ultimately translate uh, into the best final product. I think that a lot of time throughout this movie is spent um, taking avenues and side streets. And despite all that, despite all that, uh, the directorial effort on display is just so so brilliant. Uh, the from from the characters to uh, the way that the scenes are, uh, are are cut together and reshaped, and how the movie manages to still be coherent and still come across as this sort of sweeping financial fraud epic uh it's it's really fascinating the way that uh scorsese scorsese pulled this off you know he i mentioned the way that um dicaprio's character is larger than life and that is scorsese finding the right camera angles and finding the right portrayal of dicaprio to put him in a position where you know he the perspective of the shot changes and giving him uh, direction to the point where he's, you know, building himself up and, and, and boosting his own um, image. And I think uh, just the team of Scorsese and DiCaprio is is phenomenal. And hopefully they continue to work together. I think that uh, this is uh, my favorite Scorsese work in in probably since Departed. I would guess, uh, and and might even be more, and I might even like it more than The Departed, as a directorial effort at least. Uh, so, for me, number four is Scorsese for Wolf of Wall Street. Number three, um, number three is Steve McQueen for Twelve Years a Slave. I think he did a fantastic job with this movie. I think. Uh, you know, getting these performances, uh, you know, I think directing a film that takes place during slave times, and I, I, I realize I'm bringing that issue up a lot with this regards to this film, but it is so central and, and focused on in this movie. Uh, I think that uh, getting those roles and performances out of these people who didn't grow up in a time where slavery was prevalent, who didn't uh, or, or presumably don't um, have feelings uh, about wanting slaves or, or being a slave and, and who don't, you know, have never experienced the, getting these actors to that point is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was, he was working with them and, and helping them to achieve that, to, uh, craft this story, which is, uh, you know, based on real events and to, put it on film in a way that doesn't feel like it's cheapening the experience where it doesn't feel like you've you've you know to take uh, um, um, John Ridley's screenplay and enhance it for the audience and and work with him to get it to a point where you can really feel 
the 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 truth of the movie that is that is a testament to its its impressiveness and it's it's really fascinating to see this all play out on a screen and all play out uh, in front of you and and the struggle and and the the pain associated with this movie and you know McQueen strikes the perfect tone you know it's it's a dire movie it's a, a filled with atrocities movie and yet it never loses its hope because uh, there is a, a light at the end of this tunnel and it's it's a very very careful balancing act that he pulls off so my number three is 12 years a slave steve mcqueen and the runner-up for best director this year is spike jones for her uh comes very close does not quite get there i think his uh just the way he you know he wrote the film i think it is incredibly well written and it also incredibly well directed but i i do think that man he he combines so many of these elements the 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 mu the music he he works into this movie and the the from and the locations and the actors and the performances and he makes such a strange film one that manages to be dirty and raunchy early on in the movie becomes uh, ex- existential and and musing about the state of war- life and artificial intelligence and what that all means. Uh, to have both ends of that spectrum in this movie takes a hell of a director to pull off. And Spike Jones does that uh, very, very well. Um, he is at his at the top of his game, at the top of his game with her, and keeping us in this tone of you know everything's a little light, everything's a little fun, everything's a little right of center, and that's fascinating. <laughs> that is a really you know, it, it has a, you know, it feels a touch like a Wes Anderson tone where everything's just a little off kilter, everything's a little off putting, but it doesn't, it's not anywhere close at the same time to Wes Anderson. He's doing his own thing. He's, he's striking his own balance and finding his own rhythms in this movie, putting it forward as, uh, you know, his own, um, brainchild and it it comes across exactly as i think he expects it and intends it to so uh my my number two director spike jones fantastic work he he does fantastic work uh on her and uh i'm a big fan which means uh with the second award of the night for gravity uh alfonso cuaron best director and uh previously winning best special effects this is a movie that i think it it all hinges on the director you know sandra bullock george clooney good great good performances very good performances but and and the special effects uh, are fantastic but afonso cuaron uh, the just the the force of will he had to get this movie to work for it to be 
as realistic as it possibly could for you know that huge huge tracking shot early on in the film as the space station uh, is destroyed um, so much of this movie is on Quaron's shoulders and uh, you know he he is known for his directorial achievements he is he is a fantastic director just all around and I think uh, he he really does deserve all of this credit um, that that he can possibly uh, get. I'm looking for something. Um, I I think you know I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Gravity. I think it is a very very good great movie, but it doesn't uh, peak any higher than that for me. But the I th- the direction of it is is unparalleled. I, I think it's it's you know as much as Spike Jones achieved exactly what he wanted with her, uh, you know I think Quaron managed to achieve better than what he wanted with Gravity. If that makes any sense, uh, you know he. This is a movie that, in any other hands, comes across more like. Uh, I don't know, um, you know, a gen- just a generic space movie, and and this is not that. This is this is just this is a well crafted, beautifully constructed, well acted, um, paced perfectly. You know, it's a very short movie, uh, and and yet it doesn't, and it just it feels so claustrophobic, and and he's able, Quaron is able to at times make you feel like you are Sandra Bullock and make you feel like you are trapped and then at other times you know take you out of things and then make you help you like kind of appreciate the circumstances surrounding her uh and I I I just I I really really love the way he approached this movie and I think it is stupendous stupendous so that is number one Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity running down the top five Mark uh Nope. Um, Stephen Knight for Locke. Martin Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Steve McQueen for 12 Years a Slave. Spike Jones for Her. And number one, Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity. Which brings us to the final category of the evening. The 2013 Circle of Film Awards Best Picture. And the nominees are... 12 Years a Slave, Before Midnight, Her, Let the Fire Burn, and Short Term 12. Uh, so, surprisingly, uh, a movie that only got nominated for Best Picture, Let the Fire Burn, we will talk about that in a second, but it is not my number five of the year. Number five for 2013 is Her. Her, uh, Finishing the night with seven nominations, uh, tied for the most nominations of the night. Finishing it with three uh, wins, which will be the number with which is can only be the number one uh, film as far as wins are concerned. Uh, has a fantastic showing here. Uh, I've talked plenty about it uh, and all the different elements of it. You know, winning screenplay, score, tactile effects. It is a beautifully constructed film. It is hilarious. It is dramatic, 
and uh, bolstered by fantastic performances across the board. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of her. I'm a big fan of Spike Jones, and I love this movie. Uh, it is is quite exceptional and very very entertaining and thought provoking. You know, it, it hits all those different chords, and um, I I just love it. Uh, it has a 96 overall for me. It is in my top 300 movies. Um, at, technically at number 85 so uh it is it is you know all five of the top films from this year are in my top 100 which is insane uh what a just a great year and her number five number four is let the fire burn so first nomination of the night for let the fire burn um only nomination of the night uh it is and it's for best picture it is a documentary um that is my number 74 film of all time, which is, it takes place in, I want to say, somewhere in PA, Philly. Yeah, it's a Philly movie where um, there were riots, uh, the police were involved, um, and what happens is it ends up being a. It's in. It happened in the mid '80s. It's a standoff between the Philadelphia police and a black liberation group called MOVE. And uh, they, the police decide that they are going to uh, evict a group of, these libera- uh, these, of this group from their row house uh, in, on a street in Philly. Gunfire breaks out. Uh, tear gas dis- was not enough. They used tear gas. It didn't get everybody out of the house. And finally, they dropped explosives on on this house. And that started a fire. Uh, And uh, there were still people inside the building, including children. And the decision from the police was to let the fire burn, uh, which could not be contained. It ended up destroying over 60 houses, killing more than 10 people. And uh, the reasoning for this, for, for why they let it burn, officials say that they were worried that the liberation group would shoot at the firefighters. And, and the, the, the documentary goes into so much more than that. It is, it is heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, and every other emotion you can think of, and truly horrific and uh, it features a lot of footage from the event, which is striking and uh, truly just a fantastic documentary. I, I'm it's something I it gave me goosebumps watching it, and I, I just couldn't comprehend human beings doing something like that. It's it's awful. Number four, let the fire burn. Number three of the year, we've talked about it a few times already, and that is before midnight. Uh, capping off the trilogy, um, it is my number, up here it is, number 46 of all time right now, and it is just, just a beautiful culmination of these characters. If they ever do make a fourth before movie, uh, I don't know what it'll be about, but I would be, I, I would never say no to that. I think that 
Julie Delpy and uh, Ethan Hawke and Richard Linklater just know these characters so well that you can't deny how perfect that they've crafted Jesse and Celine. It is incredible the way that they have blossomed on the screen. I, I'm in awe, just totally in awe, and I love it. Before Midnight, my number three. Number two, we talked about it. This is the penultimate film, the runner-up for Best Picture this year, and unfortunately uh, is going to be going home empty-handed despite seven nominations, uh, which is 12 Years a Slave. Um, it is a phenomenal film. I, I don't want to take anything away from it. It is one of my favorites. It has, It is my 25th top 25 films of all time. It just kind of ran into a buzzsaw, which is my number one. It was number two in picture, three in director, eight in lead, two and five in supporting, fourth in screenplay, and fifth in scene. Uh, it is the now highest most nominated film to not receive an award, uh, besting The Shape of Water 2017, which was nominated six times without winning. Uh, it was nominated for three acting awards, um, which ties movies like Steve Jobs, uh, The Hateful Eight, um, and Birdman, which were all also nominated for three acting awards. Uh, but 12 Years a Slave is an incredible film, a brilliant feature. It's a feat of immense strength from not just Steve McQueen, but the cast, the crew, everybody involved with it. And uh, the it is the best picture winner of the year. And it is very, very nearly my personal best picture winner. Uh, so I, I love 12 Years a Slave. But there's another movie with 12 in its title that I think is just a little bit better. And that's Short Term 12. My best picture of 2013 is Short Turn 12. Six nominations on the night, winning picture and scene. Two awards that have gone hand-in-hand in in 2014 for Whiplash, in 2015 for Mad Max Free Road, and uh, that's it so far. Uh, But three out of five ain't bad. Uh, I mean, they're the categories that most often go together, as it turns out. Um... Short Term 12, I, I've talked about it a lot already, and uh, you know I think it, it's a movie that deserves to be seen. It is a small movie with a negligible budget and some, just some of the best actors before they were big. John Gallagher Jr. and Brie Larson and Lakeith Stanfield and Rami Malek and, and beyond that and beyond that uh, are all fantastic and... Unfortunately, uh, Destin Daniel Cretton hasn't quite followed that up with, um, I think his next, his movie after that was, um, came out last year, was uh, The Glass Castle, which was meh at best. So that, I'm disappointed by that, but man, if this movie isn't, isn't incredible, in my opinion, uh, it, it just really is truly remarkable and and i i couldn't it, it had to be this movie it just it had to be so for me short term 12 best picture let me run down those those nominees again uh the category again from best from worst to best her let the fire burn before midnight 12 years a slave and short term 
12, which is my number 10 movie of all time. Short term, 12. Those are the 2013 Circle of Film Awards to give you an idea of where things stand. Let me see here. Quaron is now one for one at, dire- at the director's. Uh, he joins... <clears throat> He joins, uh, let's see, make sure I have this right here. He joins Richard Linklater, George Miller, Denny Villeneuve, and Christopher Nolan as my previous Best Director winners. Uh, Best Lead Performance goes to DiCaprio. His first win on two nominations. Uh, He joins the cast of... uh, if it wants me to see it. He joins Brie Larson, Andy Serkis, Natalie Portman, and Jake Gyllenhaal as the previous winners in this category. Um, As far as supporting goes, we have Lea Seydoux, who wins her first award on her first nomination, joining Laurie Metcalf, John Goodman, J.K. Simmons, and Benicio Del Toro as previous winners in that category. Um, I believe you might be able to hear the rain hitting the AC unit behind me. Uh, Moving on to screenplay. Uh, Screenplay going to Spike Jones. This is one of the two nominations for Jones, both of them this year. He joins Aaron Sorkin, Alexander Dinalaris, Armando Bow, Mike Mills, Nicholas Giacobone, Greta Gerwig and Alejandro Inaritu as winners of this category. And finally, in the individual situation, score goes to her for Arcade Fire, which is their first win. His, there. Uh, joining Andy Hull, Robert McDowell, Hans Zimmer, Michael Giacchino, and Alexander Desplat as previous score winners. So, uh, we have we are five years into this now, the Circle of Film Awards. We have yet to find uh, anyone win two, two awards uh, across any categories. Um, has not happened. Uh, will it ever happen? I don't know. Fastbender, now with three nominations, uh, but no wins, has the, is I guess, t- sort of the biggest loser. Gerwig, Greta Gerwig has more nominations, has more nominations without a win. That no, Greta Gerwig has lost more of her nominations than Fastbender, but she has also at least won one. Uh, so there is that. Um, yeah. There is that. DiCaprio, two nominations. Um, yeah. It's it's been it's been a thing. It's been a thing. Uh, looking ahead, um, you can find you can find a simplified variation of the 2013 Circle of Film Awards on the website. If you look under the Circle of Film Awards tab, 2010 Circle of Film Awards, and go to 2013, um, you can go to the Circle of Film Awards tab to see what records any of the films from 2013 have affected. Uh, if you just go to the Circle of Film Awards page. And you can control F for 2013. uh, And it'll just kind of jump you to all the things. Um, 
including uh, both her and 12 Years a Slave uh, become the second and third film to have more than six nominations, along with Mad Max Fury Road. Fury Road had eight. Her and 12 Years a Slave had seven. Uh, Her ties Lady Bird, War for the Planet of the Apes, and Whiplash as films with three wins, while Gravity and Short Term 12 tie 10 Cloverfield Lane, Dunkirk, and Grand Budapest Hotel as films with two wins. No film from this year had a perfect year, uh, so nothing won everything it was nominated for. Uh, This year featured one film getting multiple nominations for the same category, and that's 12 Years a Slave for Best Supporting Actor. And uh, this adds the third nomination for Fassbender. He joins Inaitu at three nominations. It is... uh, That's it. As far as that's concerned, uh, Spike Jones joins a host of other writer-directors for most nominations for a single person in a single year. Looking at some of the other things, Frozen was the most nominated animated film, uh, but won't make won't make the record list for that. Blue is the warmest color. We'll make will tie Phoenix, Victoria, and Wild Tales at two nominations for a foreign language film. Uh, Let the fire burn only had one nomination as a documentary. Mm, let's see. No nominations for the Marvel Cinematic Universe or any of the other series universes. Um, so that is not affected. Most number of unique films nominated this year is 26, uh, which is not the most nor fewest um, of any year. There are only six winners this year, uh, which is one more than the fewest number of unique winners, which happened in 2017 with five films. The most unique film winners is from 2016 with nine. So those are some of the stats. You can check more of those out at Circle Film Awards. You can hover to the 2010 Circle of Film Awards page to see the winners of every category and how they would and, and the nominations against every other winner in that category in the future to be done 2010's decade. Cinematic uh, Circle of Film Awards episode at a later point. Um, that's pretty much it, though. I realize this has been a very long episode. We are over three hours, but that is pretty typical of the Circle of Film Award episodes. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really do appreciate it, and, and it means a lot. If you would like to check out more episodes, head over to circleoffilm.com for that and a ton of other information. You can find me on Twitter at Circle of Film or send in an email, circleoffilm at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the show, you can do so for as little as eight cents an episode at patreon.com slash circle of film. Thank you one more time, and as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I know she'll never leave me. Even as she fell